Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Between 1939 and 1945, at least 70 medical research projects involving cruel and often lethal experimentation on human subjects were conducted in Nazi concentration camps. These projects were carried out by established institutions within the Third Reich, institutions which had for years been funneling money and resources into scientifically, quote, proving Nazi racial supremacy. Some of the other goals of these experiments was improving the survival and rescue of German troops, testing medical procedures and pharmaceuticals looking at you, Bear, but all of it was underpinned by the Nazis' belief in Aryan racial superiority and their willingness to do whatever to whomever to prove it. More than 7,000 victims of such medical experiments have been documented by historians, and it's very likely that there were thousands of additional victims whose documentation was destroyed or lost. The victims were composed up of Jews, Poles, the Roma people, political prisoners, Soviet prisoners of war, homosexuals, and Catholic priests. All were tested on. Many died. If you're forced to go to a concentration camp, if you didn't get immediately selected for death in the gas chambers and by some miracle survived days of hard labor and unsanitary conditions while literally starving, there was a possibility you would end up in a lab being poked and prodded by white coats who truly saw you as nothing more than a lab rat that just kind of happened to look human. And one of the worst of these white coats, arguably the worst, was Joseph Mengele. Since he started medical school, Mengele had been immersed in a world where science wasn't actually science. It was political, and it was shaped by illogical and hateful Nazi political beliefs. What a terrifying concept, when even the medical community's education is shaped more by political forces than scholarly ones. One of the first programs the Nazi party had been to turn the medical establishment on its head, convincing doctors that the old medical ethics didn't apply anymore. The Nazis gave doctors and other medical staff their new truth that the Aryan race was superior and their marching orders was to find medical evidence that supported this new supposed truth. Once World War II broke out, Mengele would spend several years on the front lines with the deadly Viking division, but it would be at Auschwitz beginning in 1943 where he would hit the most prolific 
and terrifying stretch of his career. At first, Mengele was put in charge of the Roma camp there. But then in 1944, the entire remaining population of that camp was murdered in the gas chambers. He was now promoted to chief camp physician of the entire Birkenau camp, and he began his process of brutal selections of incoming prisoners destined for the gas chambers who would now suffer an even worse fate. In the selection process, Mengele would point as victims entered Auschwitz, left or right, life or death. Those who were sick, pregnant, or otherwise looked physically weak would usually, but not always, be immediately put to death in the gas chambers. Mengele spared some others for his own personal recruiting, sparing the lives of physicians, nurses, and technicians so that they could work for him in his lab. And he would spare, at least initially, the lives of some of his subjects. Twins were always separated from the other prisoners and whisked off to a laboratory to be examined. For eugenicists like Mengele, identical twins were the perfect research subjects. Since they share a genome, scientists at the time reasoned any physical or behavioral differences of twins was due to the behavior, uh, not genetics. Still want to pronounce that as uh, genome, by the way. Uh, Abandoning medical ethics and research protocols, Mengele began conducting horrific experiments on up to 1,500 sets of twins, many of them children. Life as a Mengele twin meant sitting naked for hours and having one's body repeatedly measured and compared to other twins and to withstand injections of unknown substances that often cause severe and harmful reactions. Only 200 of the at least 3,000 twins subjected to medical experiments at Auschwitz would survive. And by the end, it wasn't only twins that Mengele would focus on. The so-called angel of death would experiment on everyone from people with physical abnormalities to pregnant women to small children to babies. He seemed especially fascinated with their eyes. It's hard to think that one man could cause so much suffering and even harder to think that he would never face justice for it. Kind of puts a dent in that whole belief in karmic retribution, doesn't it? Sometimes the good are inexplicably punished in this strange world of ours and sometimes the bad, sometimes the very worst of us are seemingly never scathed, never scratched, never faced justice. The horrifying story of Dr. Mengele, Auschwitz's angel of death, right now on this not-so-holiday Merry fucking Christmas and happy fucking Hanukkah edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Dan Cummins, a master sucker, Fox Hollow Farms ghost hunter, harbinger of holiday cheer. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Praise good boy Bojangles. And what have I done this week, Triple M? Uh, for the record, our Patreon space listeners picked the first and third Monday topics of each and every month by voting on the Time Suck app. And this topic was picked back in late October. The voted topic uh, then presented a month and a half later. And I don't think any of us realized this would uh, have this, <laughs> we'd have this episode drop the week of Christmas. Uh, personally, I think it's fucking hilarious because it is so just not right at all for this time of year. I just wanted you to know when I was coming up with a, you know, holiday topic, I didn't go, hmm, what what puts me in the mood for some holiday cheer? Oh, oh, I know the Nazi angel of death. (laughs) So happy holidays for real. And, uh, it is an interesting topic. Uh, all right. Couple quick announcements. And then we're off and running, uh, with today's subject. Sophie Evans killed the initial research this week, and I don't think I did too bad of a job adding to it. But first, uh, I do want to say thank you to all of you who came out to the Minneapolis shows. Uh, The taping on Saturday went really well. Both shows were fun, but the second show, the late show, was magic. And the Friday warm-up show, also so fun, so helpful. My voice came fully back just in time. Thank you, cough syrup that Lindsay found, tea with honey. 
a lot of time in the steam room early that day to clean my head out. And I can't wait for everyone to see it. Not sure where it's going to live. Uh, we self-funded this shoot and we will release it somewhere, I'm guessing in May or June, but it is very much uh, TBD. We'll see what happens between now and then. Uh, before it comes out, if you want to hear this material and hear it for the last time, as I'll, uh, I won't tell all these jokes after this tour, please come to the Burn It All Down, one of the theater shows uh, this spring. Uh, the Burn It All Down tour. Get some, get some tickets for someone else if you want as a, as a holiday gift. Uh, due to demand, just added second shows in Sacramento and Philly. So thank you for that. Boise and Seattle second shows almost sold out. Uh, ticket links for all these shows up at dancummins.tv. New Orleans, Dallas, San Antonio, Indianapolis, Columbus, Cleveland, and more. Really looking forward uh, to that. And uh, also, I have forgotten to mention this several weeks now. Uh, during the pandemic, I, I shot a little part in a friend's movie that did uh, very well at some film festivals. And it just got distribution. It's the disappearance of Toby Blackwood. I play, surprise, surprise, a conspiracy nut. Uh, the part felt pretty natural. I can, I can talk the talk. Uh, it'll be available on uh, video on demand platforms, iTunes, ton of other places, Tuesday, December 20th. Uh, Louise Guzman, uh, Doug Benson, Rick Gomez, bunch of others pop up in this movie that my buddy Doug Mellard co-wrote and starred in. I have not seen it, but it won a, a bunch of festival awards and I think it's going to be funny. It felt funny. So I hope you enjoy it if you, if you happen to catch it. And now back to a topic that brings us once again to World War II, uh, though this time to explore a facet of it we have not yet covered, uh, at least not fully. Though we spent a lot of time on the Nazis' racial ideology in past episodes, looking at how they believed, according to Hitler's bullshit, that white, blonde, blue-eyed, so-called Aryan people were the superior race who deserved living space at the expense of murdered ethnic others, we have not covered how that permeated almost all facets of Nazi society. I mean, we went over at length in episode 170, Nazis, uh, Nazi search for the Holy Grail, how Hitler's entire notion of what it meant to be Aryan was wackadoodle, pseudoscience, and debunked theories built largely on twisting the often erroneous conclusions of German archaeologist Gustav Cassina. Uh, it was horseshit. But Nazi ide- ideology, this horseshit, saturated German culture in the years building up to and during World War II. As a person living in Nazi Germany, you would likely go to work in a building covered in swastika flags. Maybe drink from paper cups printed with a pattern celebrating Germany's proud fake history. And on the way back from work, maybe see a parade commemorating the same fake history. Too much to go into here and a big deviation from the topic, but they presented so much complete and total bullshit as truth. So much propaganda. They created this bizarro upside down world where lies were truth and truths were lies. Kind of like what has gone down for decades now in North Korea or like what Putin and so many before him have done with Russia. Hitler and his goons created a world built on a a QAnon level of this is so fucking stupid it hurts lies. Uh, If a QAnon's chat room, if that nonsense was mainstream and taught in schools and the official party line of the controlling political party in power, that is how fucking crazy Germany was under the Nazis. The lies had gone on for so long and were so immersive and all-encompassing that even intelligent people often ended up falling for them because by the time World War II came around, they had been raised in this shit. Some of them have been, uh, been brainwashed since birth. Many of them were taught that these lies are taught these lies by their teachers, parents, youth group leaders, you know, neighbors, etc. Hearing it from their friends, just fucking everyone. You know, your kid would likely be in a, a Hitler youth and even your football club would promote health and vigor for the betterment of the German Reich, for the betterment of the master race. By 1936, all children deemed Aryan in Germany over the age of six were required to join a Nazi youth group. Everything was 100% Nazi 100% of the time. 
We've talked at length about a lot of this pervasiveness in numerous episodes, but just not as much as we're going to today. But like, you know, in bonus episode three, Hitler's Third Reich, how did it happen? Uh, episode 171, the Warsaw Ghetto, a tale of Nazi resistance. Episode 224, Viktor Frankl and several others. And today we'll focus large on how the entire German medical establishment became a part of this pervasiveness. Beginning in the early 1920s, though a German fascination with eugenics can be traced long back before that, Germany's medical establishment would begin changing its focus, education, and practice to reinforce racist Nazi pseudoscience ideology. Instead of researching cures for illnesses, time and money would be funneled instead into, quote, proving racial differences. A whole generation of doctors would be educated into believing that their purpose was not to heal whoever was sick, like a doctor is supposed to do. It was to heal Germany itself. And in order to do that, they would need to eradicate certain people deemed to be, you know, parasites, people seen as viruses that had infected and weakened the German state, people seen as a, a cancer that needed to be cut out of the communal German body. It was in this environment that Mengele came of age and studied in. And while that didn't make him unique, what did make him a bit unique was his dedication to this fake science that was consistently incorrectly and prejudicially taught. Mengele bought into the bullshit that surrounded him fully. He pursued his skewed science to the bitter end, chasing after his missing medical notes in the months after Germany fell to the Allies and would, according to his son, insist until the very end of his life, long after the war was lost, decades later, you know, uh, after Germany had come back to its collective senses, that he was just being a scientist, like he'd been appointed to be, and he did what he did for Hitler's horrible quest to dominate the world, just, you know, just the whole following orders, uh, doing my job, and didn't think his job was wrong, and didn't even think he had killed anyone. Pretty impressive rationalization, since Mengele objectively killed so many. Uh, due to this, many have painted Mengele as a monster, the angel of death, and he was a monster. Holy fuck was he a monster, but maybe not the kind many of us have pictured. Not some uh, caricature of a mad scientist obsessed with bloodshed, a demonic force delighting in other people's suffering. He didn't necessarily have grotesque or sadistic impulses, according to his primary biographer, David G. Marwell. Not sure I'm sold on that 100%, but that's what someone who has studied Mengele far more than I ever have uh, believes. What Mengele was was something perhaps even more horrifying, a scarier kind of monster, because he was but one of so many monsters. He was a typical Nazi. He was not an aberration, but one of millions uh, who didn't see Jews and Roma people and so many others as beings worthy of life or dignity. He saw so many humans as just a blight on the health of the world. At best, he saw them as lab rats, creatures it was his duty to experiment on in horribly harmful and torturous ways so that he could use the results of his wicked experiments to improve life for the Aryan race. So he could help Hitler elevate the German people to the rightful place of racial superiority. He saw this pursuit not as just rational, but as noble. And millions of other Nazis very likely felt the same damn way about their contributions to Hitler's war and his hate machine. Instead of a strange and horrific outlier, Mengele was the product and promise of a much larger system of thought, a system of thought that continually did nothing but reward his almost incomprehensible cruelty. Also, quick note, there are uh, two common pronunciations for this sadistic dipshit's name. Uh, Mengele is the most common Americanized version. That's the one I'll use, have been using, obviously. Mengele is the other. I think it's actually the uh, more correct one, but not nearly as commonly used. All right, now let's, uh, let's walk out into the grotesque fucking shitstorm that was this cartoonishly evil monster's life. So 
So how are we going to cover Mengele today? Pretty straightforward. We're going to glorify him. It's going to be a real fluff piece. We're going to build a, a verbal shrine to this God amongst men. We're going to suck this luminary's impressive Nazi dick until we choke on the perfect Aryan balls that rested beneath his tall, strong, blue vein cock ringed with beautifully pure blonde pubes. And we will bathe in the master race's cum geyser that follows and hope it impregnates our very souls. Mm-hmm. JK, of course. Now that's, uh, that's fucking crazy talk. I uh, really hope some of you uh, weren't able to hit stop or pause or mute the volume before the wrong person heard that. Uh, share your pain with us <laughs> in a funny Cummins Law update later. Come on. Uh, but how are we breaking all this down for reals? Well, we'll cover the angel of death's childhood, adulthood, crimes, and eventual escape from Germany in today's time sick timeline uh, before following him to Argentina and other places in South America to, to uh, you know, share what we know about the last years of his life. But before all that, let's take a more in-depth look at the place that would enable Mengele's crimes. Excuse me. A place we've been before, but not explored in depth. Auschwitz. Perhaps no place stands for the Nazis' agenda and cruelty more than Auschwitz. Auschwitz was a site of incomparable tragedy, unceasing fear, and unending sorrow, where countless families were torn apart and destroyed. Mengele had no problem whatsoever, aiding with all this suffering. Adding to it, Auschwitz is the German name for a Polish city, uh, Auschwitz-Chim. Auschwitz-Chim. <laughs> These fucking words are ridiculous. I practice them and it's still like, my brain's like, what the fuck is this? Uh, Auschwitz-Chim. Auschwitz-Chim uh, is located approximately 40 miles west of Krakow. I can do that one. Uh, Germany annexed this area of Poland in 1939. The camp would open in the spring of 1940. Its first commandant was Rudolf Hurs, uh, born in 1900, who previously had helped run the Sachsenhausen concentration camp. And Hearst was the longest-serving commandant of Auschwitz, uh, running the death camp from May 4th, 1940 to November 1943. And then again, from May 8th, 1944 to January 18th, 1945. And then he was found guilty after the War of War Crimes and hanged in 1947. So, hail Nimrod. When accused of murdering three and a half million people, Hearst coldly replied, No, only two and a half, only two and one half million. The rest died from disease and starvation. Well, you kind of forced him into that environment that led directly to the disease and starvation, you fucking twat. Uh, Interestingly, four days before he was executed, uh, Hearst did acknowledge the enormity of his crimes in a message to the state prosecutor. And I'm not going to try and read this in accent because somehow it turned Russian for some reason. Uh, He wrote, My conscience compels me to make the following declaration. In the solitude of my prison cell, I have come to the bitter recognition that I have sinned gravely against humanity. As commandant of Auschwitz, I was responsible for carrying out part of the cruel plans of the Third Reich for human destruction. In so doing, I have inflicted terrible wounds on humanity. I caused unspeakable suffering for the Polish people in particular. I aim to pay for this with my life. May the Lord God forgive one day what I have done. I ask the Polish people for forgiveness. In Polish prisons, I experienced for the first time what human kindness is. Despite all that has happened, I have experienced humane treatment, which I could never have expected and which has deeply shamed me. May the facts which are now coming out about the horrible crimes against humanity make the repetition of such cruel acts impossible for all time. I mean, you know, good for him at the end there. Uh, That's almost scarier to me than if he didn't show any remorse, though. It just kind of shows how a lot of these guys, uh, they weren't actually deranged psychotics operating outside the boundaries of what their culture deemed acceptable. They were psychologically pretty normal. They did what they did uh, because their cruelty was revered and reinforced continually by the culture around them. Right. This illustrates how, given the right cultural conditions, Nazis, whose actions are akin to the actions of the worst serial killers we have covered, uh, were not outliers. 
They were part of the in crowd. Imagine living in a world where people like DC Sniper, John Allen Muhammad, Papa John, OKC Bomber Timothy McVeigh, Old Noodle McDrywing are not seen by most as monsters. They're instead uh, revered, heralded, seen by most as heroes. Better scapegoats, greater cruelty, Papa Hitler. The camp uh, Auschwitz was located on the outskirts of Auschwitz in German-occupied Poland. It was originally established in 1940 and originally referred to as Auschwitz I or main camp. During the camp's construction, nearby factories were appropriated and all those living in the area were forcibly ejected the fuck out of their homes and then their homes were bulldozed by the Nazis. And, you know, they, they were given no compensation. Crazy how many victims of the Nazis there really were when you think about it. I mean, imagine just having, uh, you know, your fucking business taken from you and then bulldozed and given nothing. No one to complain to unless you definitely want to be killed. And you might be killed anyway. Or sent to the very camp where your business used to stand to help the people who just fucked your life over try and win the war until you were literally worked to death. The fucking bitterness. It would be almost impossible not to feel standing in what was once like your yard, now wearing a prison jumpsuit surrounded by Nazi guards and dogs and barbed wire and death and despair. I mean, I felt ripped off looking at my uh, corporate tax bill a few days ago. Like, what? How? We already paid so much. This puts things into perspective. I mean, I can still be annoyed, but also feel so thankful that this Nazi shit that was the reality for millions and millions and millions of people is not my reality. Maybe just be glad you have a job that allows you to pay your taxes coming and shut the fuck up, you whiny little baby. Uh, The Auschwitz-Birkenau Killing Center, an expansion of the camp located just three kilometers away from the original site, also referred to as Auschwitz II, was located uh, near a Polish village that in German translates to Birkenau. Not even going to try and say that one in Polish. Uh, Construction began on this newer part of the complex after a visit by Himmler in March of 1941. He wanted to increase the extermination capabilities of the site. Construction began that October. Like most German concentration camps, Auschwitz was constructed for three purposes. Fun, vacations, no, uh, to incarcerate real and perceived enemies of the Nazi regime and the German occupation authorities in Poland for an indefinite period of time, uh, to provide a supply of forced labor for deployment in SS-owned construction-related enterprises and later armaments and other war-related production, And finally, to serve as a site to kill targeted groups of the population whose death was determined by the SS and police authorities to be essential to the security, to the health of Nazi Germany. Unlike other large death camps located in Nazi-occupied Poland, where the Nazis made more effort to hide the evidence of what they'd been doing as the war ended, the mechanism of murder at Auschwitz was easy to discover, mainly due to it being harder to destroy uh, due to its enormous size, and the Nazis had to flee very quickly due to rapidly advancing Allied forces. From other death camps, only a handful of survivors emerged to recount what had happened. From Auschwitz, uh, many thousands lived on to describe the horror they'd witnessed and experienced. It is mainly for this reason that we know so much more about Auschwitz than we do about most of the other camps. Estimated that the SS and police deported at least 1.3 million people to Auschwitz, at least 1.3 million, uh, to the complex between 1940 and 1945. Uh, Of these deportees, approximately 1.1 million people would be murdered. Massive numbers. Uh, more people would die at Auschwitz than at any other concentration camp. Those entering its main gate were greeted with an uh, infamous and ironic description. Work makes you free. That's still there today. Work makes you free as you walk in. Holy shit. I wonder if whoever put that up actually thought it would uplift prisoners' spirits or if they did it just to be a fucking dick. Uh, Hello, friends. Uh, Please do not be sad. Yes, life is different now for you than before, but never forget... Life is what you make it. 
You choose how to feel about everything and anything. So choose to see this. I, I implore you as a, a, a wonderful adventure, as a wonderful opportunity to be part of something better than yourselves. Much better since, of course, you are, you know, dirty ratchets. The fuck are these guys doing? Uh, upon arriving to the camp, detainees were examined by Nazi doctors. Any detainees considered unfit for work, including young children, the elderly, pregnant women, and the infirm, were immediately ordered to take showers, you know, death showers. The bathhouses to which they marched were disguised gas chambers. Once inside, the prisoners were exposed to Zyklon B gas starting in early September of 1941. For those prisoners who initially escaped the gas chambers, they then tried to eke out a shitty existence in very unhygienic conditions with little food for as long as they could, hoping for the Allies to save them while they were, you know, worked to the bone. Prisoners worked day in and day out, mostly performing manual labor for long stretches of time, heaving stones, grinding metal, uh, collecting the belongings of the newly arrived prisoners, many of which were dying as they sorted those things for their Nazi oppressors. Prisoners also made up much of the camp staff, from messengers between SS officers to prisoners who staffed the offices uh, or those directed like with Mengele to help SS officers with various projects. And how fucked... To stay alive by helping the people who despise you kill others like you before they try and kill you. Since it was the biggest and had the widest scope of activity of all the concentration camps, Auschwitz was like a miniature city. And the city required, among so many other things, doctors, many of them. Weird to think that uh, a place of such vast death and destruction would have so many doctors. But as we said above, the doctors at Auschwitz weren't there really to heal people. They were simply another piece of the Nazi death machine. Mengele's direct supervisor was Dr. Edward Wirths, the garrison physician, who was the chief medical authority of the camp. Wirths reported to Dr. Eno Lawling, the chief physician of all concentration camps. Lawling headed the Department of Medical and Hygiene Affairs of the administration and Economic Authority of the SS, which oversaw the concentration camp system. And Lawling, uh, like the rest of these despicable fucks, did a bunch of nasty shit. This fucking psychopath once ordered a collection of human skins with tattoos to be prepared in different ways and sent to Berlin. You know, like uh, gifts. Hundreds were prepared. Healthy prisoners were killed with an injection to the heart so as not to damage their tattoos. Lalian also ordered SS doctors to experiment with shrinking human heads. And at least three were shrunk. You know, you can have another little gift. Uh, this guy killed himself as the war drew to a close. He knew the world would judge him. Dr. Wirth was a big fan of Mengele and authorized his horrific experiments. He also will kill himself after being captured following the war. He knew he'd be convicted of war crimes with which he was uh, charged. As chief medical officer, uh, Wirths was responsible for all the medical care of SS members assigned to the SS garrison in Auschwitz and supervised a well-equipped field hospital, staged with dentists, pharmacists, German Red Cross nurses, and medical orderlies. A, quote, disinfection commando, which was recruited from the orderlies, was responsible for the disinfection facilities, which served legitimate public health needs, as well as the handling of the Zyklon B gas, the activation in the camp's gas chambers. In addition, Verse oversaw medical care for the camp's inmate population, which was carried out by camp physicians. The care of individual inmates was initially of very little interest to the SS until as the war progressed and prisoner labor became increasingly valuable, concern for their ability to work increased. Overall inmate health, as it affected the SS and civilian operators of the camp, was, however, a significant of significant importance from a public health standpoint from the very beginning. Given the poor nutrition and sanitary conditions, disease and even epidemics were a constant concern and SS camp physicians were on the front lines in combating them. Camp physicians admitted and discharged prisoners from the camp's infirmaries, diagnosed prisoners and recommended treatments, certified the quality of the meals from camp kitchens and supervised the hospitals. 
They were also required to check the medical condition of newly arrived and released prisoners. And toward the end of the war, they examined German prisoners. Uh, they examined German prisoners for their fitness for military service. In cases of accidental or violent deaths of prisoners, the camp physician was required to perform or supervise an autopsy to determine the cause of death. But beyond these tasks, which were more or less in line with a physician's traditional responsibilities, the camp's physicians also played an intimate role in something much more or less traditional, uh, mass murder. They carried out, as I mentioned, selections on the ramp of prisoners arriving at Auschwitz, determining who would be killed immediately in the gas chambers and who could first be exploited for their labor. They also carried out selections of already admitted prisoners in the camp infirmaries to ascertain who was still capable of work and who should now be killed and replaced. So fucking cold. They certified the deaths of victims in the gas chambers were present at the administration of corporal punishment and attended executions. They saw so much death. And there was one more duty, a duty Mengele would excel at. In addition to their assigned official duties, Auschwitz camp physicians engaged in experiments involving inmate subjects. Experiments kept a bit more hidden than even the fact that these work camps were really death camps. Research in Auschwitz, like that conducted in other camps, included projects to serve quote-unquote practical goals, such as the research at uh, Dachau into methods of rewarming bodies suffering from hypothermia. That was important uh, to the Luftwaffe for its treatment of rescued pilots. Uh, But the most extensive research focused on what had always been the Nazis' main project, eliminating others based on notions of racial inferiority. The biggest series of experiments at Auschwitz involved perfecting a method for reliable and efficient mass sterilization, which the Nazis planned to use on non-Aryans. These experiments were ordered by Heinrich Himmler, military commander of the Waffen-SS, commander of the Gestapo, minister of the interior, commander of the Home Army, and supreme leader of the administration of the entire Third Reich. Hitler's right-hand man, and uh, at 5'9 and 150 pounds, not a real physically imposing member of the Nazi superior race. At 6'1 and around 230 pounds, I would have been a fucking massive Nazi if they would have had me, which uh, I don't think they would have, since I'm such a mutt. No pure blood, dang it. Uh, I just think it's funny how these master race motherfuckers, for the most part, look like dudes I could easily slap around uh, at the bar. And I'm not that tough. Samoans, if there's a master race, might be Samoans. Uh, anyway, these experiments were largely carried out by Professor Carl Klauberg, an expert on infertility, who was able to devise a non-surgical method using x-rays, which he estimated could sterilize up to 1,000 women a day given the right staffing and equipment. The Klauberg experiments were done on specially selected women between the ages of 20 and 40 who had given birth and had not stopped menstruating in the camp. After a detailed medical interview, victims uh, selected for the experiment were made to sit in a gyna... Gynecol- oh my gosh, gynecology. There we go. I was trying to say gynecological with a E at the end. Uh, in a gynecology chair. A radio- radiological contrast medium was injected into their fallopian tubes, which were then x-rayed to test for patency. On verification of patency, victims were told to run around the room for a while, clear up their tubes, and then they were x-rayed again while a special liquid, most probably a solution of uh, formalin, was injected into their fallopian tubes. This experiment was repeated three to six times on the same women at intervals of three to four weeks. The injected substance was expected to block the fallopian tubes after six weeks of all the women subjected to it, which uh, was then to be confirmed in a checkup examination carried out again with the use of a contrast agent. In the next stage of the experiment, which was planned but never accomplished, after a year, the victims were to have intercourse with male prisoners to test the effectiveness of this method of sterilization practically. You know, they just planned on adding a, you know, a bit of sterile, medically monitored rape into the experiment. That's all. 
Uh, this stage was never reached because victims of these experiments fell ill with inflammation of various parts of their reproductive organs. The exact number, not known, but has been estimated to be in the hundreds. When the Auschwitz camp was dismantled, victims of this experiment were transferred to the uh, Ravensbrück all-female concentration camp where the experiments continued. Complications from this experiment were frequent, including uh, peritonitis and hemorrhages from the reproductive tract, leading to fever and sepsis, multiple organ failure, and death frequently followed. These women suffered fucking immensely from these painful experiments before they died. While some of Klauberg's Jewish patients died from the experiments directly, many others who didn't were still deliberately put to death so that autopsies could be carried out to further study what had been done to them. Klauberg spent a decade in prison following the war, uh, was released, was quickly arrested again after public outcry in 1955, and then died before his trial in 1958. So at least he didn't get to enjoy a, a post-war life. Another parallel uh, series of experiments on sterilization was carried out by Dr. Horst Schumann, Schumann uh, who primarily irradiated the testicles of Jewish male prisoners seeking the appropriate effective dose. Dr. Hotballs, the fuck? Part of Schumann's control test to check whether the radiation worked was to uh, was the so-called semen check. A fucking stick covered with a rubber hose was inserted into the asshole of the victims. And their glands were stimulated until ejaculation occurred so that the ejaculate could be tested for sperm. Couldn't even give these dudes some porn and let them just fucking beat off into a cup. You know, just had to treat them consistently like inhuman animals. Also, these guys suffered and uh, often died or were, you know, just killed to be studied later. Uh, cancer research projects also done involving the removal of large parts of women's uh, services, cervixes, excuse me. A specially constructed intravaginal camera was used during these experiments, causing tremendous pain and exhausting the victims. Uh, Schumann would uh, only end up serving six years in prison for all this shit, and not until 1966. He'd be released early then for uh, having a heart condition and would live another 11 years. Fuck, fuck these people's heart condition. That is so fucking stupid. What a bullshit reason to release someone. Just, just let their heart stop beating in their cell. Let them fucking suffer in agony with chest pains. Who gives a shit? Right, their patients suffered fucking bleeding hearts. God, letting their emotions override their brains when it comes to prisoners like this. I just so strongly believe that some people, based on what they did to others, are not worthy of literally any sympathy ever again. They bitch too much about their mistreatment. Who gives a fuck? Give them a bullet to shut them up. Uh, there were also attempts to artificially inseminate women who were, uh, which were conducted in association with sterilization experiments. I'm sure these fuckers were not gentle with their insertion of sperm. The after effects of these experiments were uh, not only infertility and castration, but complications such as burns, abscesses, uh, especially in the abdominal wall and reproductive organs, massive infections and death. What an immensely horrifying reality these victims saw that most of us, thank God, will never encounter. An evil doctor harming instead of helping. A doctor who injects you, slices you open, performs surgeries on you, not to help cure you, but just to kind of find out what might happen. A doctor who could truly care less how much pain the procedures cause you. No medicine for the pain, no anesthetic in most of these experiments, right? No painkillers. They didn't want to waste the money. These doctors didn't care if you lived or died, were permanently disfigured. They definitely didn't care how much this shit hurt. Being in the hands of these doctors, every bit as terrifying as being at the mercy of one of the, any one of the worst serial killers we've covered here. Sometimes surgeons experimented on patients for reasons not associated with any specific experiments. A variety of surgical uh, operations were carried out on no real medical basis whatsoever that any, anyone can ascertain now. Like they were just done for uh, for practice, for uh, fucking funsies, just to be cruel. Uh, for instance, limb amputations were done on patients suffering from randomly ulcers. 
Because why not? Just curious what happens uh, to their ulcers if, uh, you know, you cut their fucking arms or legs off. Sometimes these arms or legs would then be sewn onto other inmates whose arms or legs had also been chopped off and just gruesome and botched transplant experiments that were never successful. And no painkillers for that either. These motherfuckers were truly devils. Other operations done on no moral grounds were uh, laparotomies, hernia operations, the extraction of nerves, uh, muscles and bones. Early labor was induced in pregnant women to see how early it could be induced and have the baby still live. If the babies did live, they were then, you know, just killed. And those uh, laparotomies, by the way, that's when the stomach is cut open to examine the organs inside, like really cut open. No painkillers, man. Just pinned down, stomach sliced open just to take a little fucking peek around, maybe poke around, maybe see what happens if uh, different organs are removed. Dr. Johann Paul Kremer carried out especially cruel experiments on the effects of starvation and was particularly interested in brown liver atrophy. According to Polish historian Irina Stretzleka, this was his process. Every morning at the outpatient clinic in block number 28 in the main camp, he reviewed the prisoners applying for admission to the hospital. Among them were many extremely starved and exhausted prisoners, the majority of whom were put to death by lethal injection of phenol. Just before before putting them to death, as they lay on the autopsy table, he asked them for information he regarded as important, such as their weight before arrest or the last medicine they had taken. Samples of of the liver, spleen, and pancreas were then removed while the corpse was still warm. Man, literally asking someone for information while they're on their deathbed a deathbed you made for them, right? They're laying there terrified, doesn't get much more evil than that. You can't even let them think their own final thoughts. Not even a final fucking 30 seconds of some kind of peace. In one particularly strange and disturbing set of experiments, uh, Dr. Emil Kashub was sent to Auschwitz to unmask the various methods of malingering that were becoming widespread amongst German soldiers, especially on the Eastern Front, including self-inflicted wounds, abscesses, fever, and infectious hepatitis. Basically, German soldiers were faking illnesses to get out of serving in what had been a fucking brutal war. You know, they didn't want to fight for a deranged megalomaniac in the freezing cold of a Russian winter without the proper clothing, equipment, or rations anymore. Millions of Hitler's victims were the very soldiers who fought for him, uh, fighting for him only so they uh, wouldn't incur his wrath. But Dr. Kashyap, using Jewish prisoners, would attempt to provoke the same symptoms displayed by the malingering soldiers by a variety of torturous methods. Not sure what happened to Dr. Kashyap following the war. He seems to have disappeared, maybe made it to Argentina. Uh, Prisoners from Auschwitz were also supplied to physicians and other camps for research. For instance, 20 Jewish children were selected by Mengele in Auschwitz and then sent to Neuengamme, that concentration camp, to serve as subjects for experiments on tuberculosis conducted by Dr. Kurt Heismeyer. These poor kids would end up being hanged from some heating pipes in Hamburg in April of 1945 to eliminate evidence of Heismeyer's experiments. I just fucking murdered some innocent, tortured kids as the war wound down to, uh, you know, maybe reduce the chance he'd be captured and executed for war crimes. Heismeyer will escape to East Germany following the war and will open a successful medical practice as a lung and tuberculosis specialist. So how nice for him. Luckily, he will be arrested in 1966 and then die in prison in 1967 at the age of 61. Uh, Never showed any remorse until the end. Did not see his prisoners as humans. That fucker killed kids as young as seven years old. And uh, like we covered in the Bayer episode, Nazi scientists also used Auschwitz prisoners to test the tolerance and effectiveness of certain drugs on behalf of IG Farben, right? One-time parent company of Bayer. Bayer Evil Incorporated. These drugs were tested for a variety of infectious diseases, chiefly typhus and tuberculosis, 
on subjects who were specially infected for the experiment. Many of the individuals subjected to these mass experiments died and many developed painful diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, blackouts, and circulatory disorders before they died. A group of 150 women all died following a test in which an unknown sleeping drug was administered to them. Right? Just, just gave them too much. Whoops. Oh, well. All of this is horrifying in its individual ways, but especially horrifying as part of an organized and governmentally authorized system. Auschwitz was a death factory, a place that gobbled up human lives for work and so-called scientific progress, and it would be exactly where Joseph Mengele thrived. All right, the stage has been set. Time to really meet the monster of the week. Uh, And again, don't want to forget, happy holidays. (laughs) This is the most fucked up holiday episode ever. Time now for today's Time Suck Timeline. Right after today's sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. 
Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for listening to Meet Zacks. Now let's dive in. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TIMESUCK timeline. On March 16, 1911, Joseph Mengele is born, showing an early predilection for medical experimentation. As a fetus, he ripped out his own umbilical tube, right, the cord, uh, clawed his way out of his mother's uterus. He crawled through her stomach, pulled himself up her esophagus, uh, forced her way out of her mouth by uh, grossly dislocating her lower jaw. When asked why, he would later say he was just curious. He wanted to know what would happen. Uh, she died, according to his medical notes. Uh, no, he was born naturally and she lived. Uh, unfortunately, they both did. His childhood home would be uh, what biographer David Marwell called an unlikely incubator for the future angel of death. Unlike the vast majority of Germans who would later commit crimes under the Nazi regime, Mengele's childhood was not shaped by the loss of World War I. He was not left fatherless, like many of his peers, nor was his father a shameful figure returning from a lost war. Instead, his father Karl had served in the German army at the beginning of the war and then was recalled after two years to go back to running his business which had produced farm machinery before the war, but during the war ended up producing a lot of equipment for the war effort. In fact, the war made successes of the Mengele family. Carl's firm manufactured metal plummets used in the deployment of naval mines and two-wheeled horse-drawn wagons to transport munitions so that the company went from employing 15 people in 1915 to 91 by the war's end. Carl Mengele's status was on the rise and so was his family's wealth. Mengele's mother was named Walburga. <laughs> She was three years older than her husband. Well, Berger uh, came from a well-respected Gunsberg family where he would, uh, uh, and he would later describe his father as a good-natured and soft-hearted man. He'd say that his mother was extremely determined and forceful. Also, before we go for, forward, Walburga? What a fucking name. Apologies to all the uh, Walburgas who listen to the show, but come on, you've been teased for a long time. That name to me sounds like a shitty casserole. 
right? Like, oh man, Walburga tonight. Something made with about to spoil hamburger and random leftovers from the fridge. Just, huh, uh, hamburger, french fries, uh, broccoli, chili, Swiss cheese, carrots, brown gravy. Looks like a glazed donut there. Are those SpaghettiOs? Uh, is that a toenail? Uh, what do you call this? It's Walburga. Eat up. Enjoy your Walburga. Uh, anyway, when Carl showed up at the factory, no big deal. But when Walburga showed up, everyone was scared. Walburga was a devout Catholic. And though Joseph wouldn't be religious, he'd remain in the church and opt for a church wedding, which uh, was, uh, those were uncommon actions among SS men who generally saw the Nazi state as the only institution capable of ushering any supreme authority. Right, back to his childhood in his autobiography, uh, unpublished writings recovered after his death, Mengele would dedicate more than 100 pages to his early life, painted a picture of a secure childhood surrounded by parents, grandparents, and household help. He was born with his mom, was 31. She'd lost her firstborn just days after giving birth. Now a new baby was wanted more than ever. And when Joseph arrived, he, he took his place at the center of the family, right, primed to dote upon him. He'd have two younger brothers, Carl and Alois, who shared his untroubled and uneventful childhood. In 1924, around the time when Joseph is 13, he joins the Greater German Youth League. He'd be uh, the leader of a chapter of the organization from 1927 when he was 16 until 1930. As a leader, he'd organize events for 60 boys and 30 girls, including a summer solstice celebration. He later wrote, We were proud of our big solstice fire, which blazed into the heavens on the ridge opposite the hometown. Announcing that a small group of boys and girls today celebrated the solstice with fervent thoughts and desires in their hearts to awaken and arouse the people of their homeland to the holy struggle of liberation from the shackles of the nefarious Versailles Treaty. The flames should liberate us and illuminate our way. They should warm us with the love of our great people and of its high culture, and they should incinerate all discord among us Germans. Although prior to Hitler's rise, this organization did not accept uh, Jews, as Mengele explained in his diary, in order that the characteristic qualities of the German people could finally be revealed and freed from alien incrustation. Yikes. And again, Hitler not even in power yet. These are just cultural attitudes that are swirling around that any teenager can pick up on. And man, did Mengele pick up on them. Uh, Joseph attended a public school, a gymnasium. I'm studying at the gymnasium in Gunsberg. A secondary school that included instruction in Latin and Greek as uh, the basis for European culture. Uh, His performance... There was at best average earning him satisfactory marks in religion, English language, physics, and history, and a deficient mark in German language, Greek, Latin, and mathematics. While his behavior was judged acceptable, teachers didn't think he put much effort into his classwork. Maybe because he suffered a bunch of infections, which began during the school year of 1927-28, including nephritis and sepsis. Weird that such a racially, i.e. genetically superior person would be, would be such a weak fucking kid, getting just average grades. Uh, these illnesses forced him to miss school for an extended period of time, also led to a chronic kidney ailment, and this ailment prevented him from taking over the family company, which, as the oldest son, he could have claimed. Although the Great Depression had hit the business, as it would any other business uh, anywhere else in the world, Carl Mengele's firm not only survived, but really continued to thrive. I mean, comparatively, they still did great. So now, weak-ass, sickly fuck Mengele uh, gets to choose what he wants to do. Mengele graduated in 1930, unsure of what course of study he would eventually follow, uh, unmotivated by any particular passion. Without much of a plan, he'll leave home in April of 1930 to study at the uh, Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich. Uh, By that time, Munich was already the center of the Nazi party. Uh, No, it had been been the center of the Nazi party, had been for over a decade. 
In the post-war chaos after 1918, the Bavarian city and its rowdy beer halls offered Hitler an ideal stage and receptive audience for his firebrand dumbfuck politics. Yell simple slogans with enough anger for long enough and master the art of the blame game and you'll get the brain-dead, lazy-thinking masses to follow you if you have just enough charisma. That shit still happens uh, around the world. Uh, The city was a hotbed of right-wing nationalist opposition to the Weimar Republic and a logical place for Hitler to co-found his National Socialist Party in 1920. Once in office, Hitler bestowed two ideological titles on his beloved Munich, Capital of German Art in 1933 and Capital of the Nazi Movement in 1935. It was here that Mengele would spend his formative years, the college years, when people are confronting the world for real now as adults. And uh, And that world would be one fucking soaked, drenched in Nazism. In Munich, Mengele threw himself into the study of medicine and its related disciplines of human genetics and anthropology. He thought he might become a dentist, right? Thinking it'd be, uh, bring him a load of money considering there was not even one dentist in his hometown, according to his diaries. Shortly after arriving at the university, though, he had a conversation with another student he knew who argued that dentistry was too narrow a field and too specialized and advocated convincingly for medicine. Mengele came to love the wide scope of medicine. It soon became his passion. He'd write about it in his diaries like other people write love letters. I had no idea that of the many-sided natures of medicine, but the kindled flame of enthusiasm would retain its warmth, if not its brilliant luminosity, forever. How was it possible in so short a time to transform someone who was, one could almost say, resigned into someone who was enchanted? I simply cannot wait to get to burn and slice women and children to death. That is the sight of medicine I'm most excited by. I may be added that last part. Uh, Adolf Hitler understood the importance of medicine had distinct ideas about how it would be practiced in the new Germany. In an early speech before the National Socialist German Physicians League, he argued that while he could do without lawyers, engineers, and builders, he needed National Socialist doctors. I cannot do without you for a single day, not a single hour. If that's for you, if you fail me, then all is lost. I don't know. I imagine he was yelling all the time. Uh, But he said, for what good are our struggles if the health of our people is in danger? He made uh, constant references to the health of our people, made sure the physicians knew that they were responsible not for curing individuals, but for maintaining the health of Germany, of Aryan, and not Jewish Germany. This change of perception allowed German physicians to treat certain patients in ways that were previously unthinkable, ways that would have violated the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm, but now were Hitler-sanctioned. This medical league, once under Hitler, issued a demand for a new code of medical ethics. From the first day, we have made it clear that the major turnabout in the worldview of our days, an essential portion of which it is vanquishing the individual through experiencing the people, the Volk, uh, must be the guiding principle of the morality and ethics of the medical profession. In short, whatever was good for the people, Hitler's people, it was medically ethical. This belief would only become more ingrained as time went on, as revealed in in speeches uh, where he said shit like the following. The physician must abandon his old humanitarian conceptions. He has one patient, the German people. The individual is no more than a single cell of the whole people. The people are transcendent. They are not only the body, it is the body, the body. And he probably fucking screams his shit, his fucking hair whipping around, his stupid little mustache. Uh, He said, uh, the people are transcendent. They are the only body. It is this popular body which must be preserved and treated. To maintain it intact, no sacrifice is too great. Just as a doctor will not hesitate to amputate a finger to save a limb or a limb to save a life. So the Nazi physician is prepared to undertake all aggression against the individual who menaces the people against individual Germans and with even greater reason against strangers. On April 5th, 1933, Hitler asked the German medical profession move with all its energy to the forefront of the race question. 
Within weeks, Hitler's call for racial hygiene to become the primary responsibility of the physician was reflected in medical school curricula and hospital structures. It was this atmosphere that Mengele was taught in. Mengele would love one professor more than any other as he's being taught his anatomy instructor, Siegfried Maria. Oh, Siegfried, I love you. Uh, the director of the university's anatomical institute. Mengele would wax poetic in his diary about him, writing about the professor's large bulge, his tight, high ass, and his perky little peck titties. No, he wrote about his professor's uh, uh, sonorous voice and brilliant appearance, uh, even described him as godly. Molly wasn't like other professors. He counseled his students that a good physician must conceive of body and soul as a unity. He spoke of the majesty of death that they would encounter in their work. Rather than memorization, he wanted his students to have a deep, almost intuitive understanding of the human body. And that came with a lot of dissection. Dissection labs. Another new passion for Mengele, of course. And with their introduction, Malia may have created a monster. After two years at the university in Munich, Mengele now transfers to Bonn. It was common at the time for German, stu- German students to study at a number of different schools, and Mengele would attend five before matriculation. That's crazy to me. His new school was smaller with less than two-thirds the number of medical students in Munich. Bonn was also where Mengele would become politically active. Though he'd been inundated with right-wing sentiments for years, like uh, what he saw in medical school, he was still, for the average German at the time, fairly apolitical. Like many others, Mengele claimed to feel the misfortune that had been inflicted on Germany by the, by the Versailles Treaty, even though we know that his childhood was actually uh, better than most Germans, fucking little weasel. Uh, the trigger for him to get involved in politics would be somewhat interesting. While walking around Bonn, he observed a demonstration in a working-class neighborhood on the other side of the river from where he studied and lived. A line of demonstrators were crossing the bridge in the direction of the city center, carrying a blood-red flag, as he would write, with a five-pointed star. They were marching in the formation of the Red Army, dressed in Russian coats and peaked caps, according to Mengele's diary. Mengele and his friend were deeply shaken by this threatening portrayal of communist activism. And when they parted, Mengele said, Well, we now know what we have to do. Implying that it was not enough to believe in the nation, one needed to do something to combat the looming danger of the Bolsheviks. So at the age of 20, he joins the Steel Helmets. I am with the Steel Helmets now. No one can stop us. It's a Nazi paramilitary organization. Uh, Mengele would remain in Bonn for three semesters and completed his fifth semester of study of medicine, which allowed him to sit for his preliminary medical examination. He passed his milestone, which tested him in six subjects, anatomy, physiology, physics, chemistry, skateboarding, botany. Uh, no, zoology was the sixth. On August 12th, 1932, with the grade of a satisfactory. Again, it doesn't sound like he had a real master race brain. Uh, Mengele then returns to Munich in September of 1932 for his sixth semester at university, a semester that would see Germany's decisive turn towards a more aggressive form of racism and xenophobia. The Nazi party lost seats in the November 6th elections, and although many felt that its decline would continue, Hitler would be appointed chancellor on January 30th, 1933. Within a month, just a week before the end of the semester, the Reichstag burns, uh, providing a pretext for the beginning of the end of paramilitary rule and the start of the Nazi dictatorship. In May of 1933, Karl Mengele, Joseph's dad, joins the Nazi party. He'll join the SS, uh, um, but historians said that his membership was uh, performative and he didn't complete any special services or gain any high ranking. Like later on, a court will even find that Karl Mengele had, quote, acted in a fair and generous manner towards individuals who had been targeted by the Nazi regime, including political opponents and Jews. Did he? Or is that just some bullshit? Uh, Mengele Jr., meanwhile, spends the summer of 1933 in Vienna, studying through his seventh semester. Here he finds another favorite professor, Dr. Franz Hamburger. Oh, fuck yeah, Dr. Hamburger. Picture Dr. Hamburger working in a clinic with Dr. Bratwurst, Dr. Ketchup, 
He's got his nurse's french fry and sauerkraut. Maybe his wife is Walburga. Walburga burger. Uh, Dr. fucking Hamburger was a mega Nazi. I do love that his name is actually Hamburger. From 1934, Hamburger was... <laughs> it's fucking so many weird names. Was active in the Nazi party when it had been outlawed in Austria. Uh, the 1940 edition of a textbook he co-authored, Hamburger and his colleague, Hot Dog, no, some unnamed colleague, wrote... At all times, should you be aware of the duties of the National Socialist Physician? Who keeps in mind not only the individual person, but the entire people's body, in which the single person, like the cell of a human organism, is just a building block, just a cell of the people as a whole. Not only did Hamburger's Clinic advocate euthanasia for babies with physical or mental disabilities, it would routinely send children to the infamous uh, Spiegelgrand Hospital, where hundreds would be murdered under the Nazi euthanasia program called T4. It was during this time, perhaps not coincidentally, that Mengele developed an interest in twins. In the fall of 1933, Mengele returned to Munich, where in addition to medicine, he began to study anthropology under the prominent anthropologist Theodore Mollison, who became his supervisor of sports, a position literally translated as Dr. Father. So weird. Before I continue on that, uh, the coincidentally part, he did meet a pair of identical twins at this point. There was a little story about them that I actually cut out of the final notes because it was uh, fucking, it was boring. But Dr. Father, so weird. <laughs> Weird translation. Hello, Joseph. I'm Theodore, but you can call me your doctor father. I'm your doctor daddy. And you'll be a good boy, won't you? Uh, Mollison had been contributing to the field of anthropology for decades, mostly helping standardize methodolog- methodological approaches. But his passion project was studying blood as a means for identifying its owner's race. Everything is race. In 1934, Mollison would write... The new ideological attitude of our people has resulted in the use of the fieldings of scientific research that an earlier government greeted either with indifference or annoyance. Yeah, because it was fucking dumb, you dipshit. And he says, the false claim of the equality of all people, mm, boy, which has been passed on to us for centuries and which nobody really believes provided the pretext to support the inferior and to drag down the superior. <laughs> That's cool. Fuck Science. Yay, Science. Uh, I looked at some old pictures of this motherfucker and he did not look superior. Looks like another skinny fucking weak chin Nazi dork. So-called science that Mengele would study under Mollison would become an important resource for the Nazi party. Uh, What they claim was scientific proof of their bullshit ideas. Otto Eichel, uh, deputy director of the Society for Physical Anthropology, wrote in 1934, For the first time in world history, the Fuhrer Adolf Hitler has translated what we have learned about the biological foundations of the development of race. Of, oh, sorry, of, I'll stop. Uh, of a people, development of a people, race, inheritance, selection into action. It is no coincidence that this happened in Germany. German science has placed this tool in the hands of the politician. That's scary. Uh, now everything that Mengele was studying was not only ethically redefined, it had enormous political consequences that could open doors for him. As a doctor, he could be on the front lines of the racial struggle at the heart of the Nazi worldview. For the next four semesters, Mengele would study under Mollison and others, excuse me, uh, learning about childbirth, orthopedics, and surgery. His hours with Mollison were fully two-thirds of his courses. Soon after the Nazis assumed power, Mollison proposed that the anthropological collection that belonged to the institute uh, he headed be organized into an exhibition on racial science. Uh, The several years it took for the exhibition to be approved and mounted, it opened on April 2nd, 1938, coincided precisely with the period of Mengele's work with Mollison. Given Mollison's preoccupation with the exhibition and Mengele's devotion to the subject, as well as to his mentor, it seems more than likely that Mengele played a role in helping to plan and execute it. Awesome. I feel like Mollison was the uh, Emperor Palpatine to his Darth Vader. For the subject of his dissertation, Mengele selected a topic that was in line with everything he'd been learning about medicine for the Nazis. 
The project would be called Racial Morphological Examination of the Anterior Section of the Lower Jaw Among Four Racial Groups. And in it, he described a complete picture of the racial differences that emerged in the front section of the lower jaw. And ironically, Mollison's jawline, weak as fuck. Mengele's jawline, unfortunately, was pretty solid. Not gonna lie. Uh, Mengele's research involved the careful examination of 122 lower jaws, originating from six different racial groups, which were part of the university's anthropological collection. Looking only at the very front part of the lower jaw, Mengele determined 32 linear and five angular measurements relating to important landmarks within this region and derived nine ratios and other relative functions. Using these analytics, he examined their value as a racial indicator by creating a so-called significance index, which was calculated by comparing variations of a characteristic within and between the various racial groupings. The higher the significance index, the more important the characteristic was for racial discernment. Mengele's conclusions were unambiguous. He wrote, the jaws, the jaws of examined racial groups indicate in the front sections such distinct differences that they permit one to distinguish between the races. I don't know what that was. Uh, and that was, what he said was actually not true. The satisfactory student did not prove shit. This weird jaw experiments. This is all just truly fucking nonsense. Not even fellow Nazis were impressed. Uh, Mengele redeemed himself in front of his fellow Nazis during oral examinations on November 11th, 1935. He was examined in one of his minor fields, zoology, by Karl von Fritz and passed with the grade of magna cum laude. On November 13th, he was examined in anthropology, his major field, by Theodore Mollison and received a grade that fell between magna and summa cum laude. For a second minor, he was questioned in the field of physiology and received a summa cum laude. With the successful completion of uh, all these requirements, Mengele now awarded a doctor of philosophy, a summa cum laude degree, on November 13th, 1935, at the age of 24. Then in the summer of 1936, Mengele successfully passes the state examination in medicine in Munich. His next requirement was to complete a one-year internship, which he did, from September through December, 1936. Doesn't feel like a year. Feels like just a few months, but whatever. Uh, at the University Cl uh, Medical Clinic in uh, Leipzig. And then beginning on January 1st, 1937 in Frankfurt at the University Institute for Hereditary Biology and Racial Hygiene, which was actually eugenics. So he completed, oh yeah, two different places. And, and racial hygiene, another example of just kind of weird translation. And now I need you to sniff the balls of this African man. Make your notes. Now, now sniff the balls of this uh, Swedish man. Uh, make your nuts. Uh, finally, uh, sniff the balls of this uh, Brazilian man. Make your nuts to compare the Roma profiles of the different races' balls. Whose hygiene is the best? Uh, the University of Frankfurt was the home of a man who played an extraordinarily important role in Mengele's uh, continual development as a piece of shit. His intellectual and professional life, Baron Otmar von Verscher. Von Schur. Hi. Hello. I am Baron Ottmar von Verschur, a prominent German physician and eugenist and minor Dutch noble. In 1927, Verschur uh, published a study on genetics based on twin research, a methodology that became his specialty. And, you know, then, of course, Mengele's. Uh, Verschur's became one of the leading racial scientists, oxymoron, of Nazi Germany. While interning for Verschur, uh, Mengele met Irene Schonbein. Very attractive 19-year-old lady, daughter of a successful businessman, Harry Schonbein. Mengele, uh, as much as I hate to admit it, was a pretty handsome dude himself. And these two would hit it off. With all these requirements now fulfilled, Mengele became a physician on September 1st, 1937. Mengele then started on his second doctorate, this one in medicine, with Otmar von Verschur as his doctor father. Mm, I am your doctor father. Bend over and take your lesson. 
Already a licensed physician, uh, Mengele did not need this degree in order to practice, but it was necessary for an academic career to teach or manage university laboratory or institute and required further study as well as a completion of a dissertation. For his second dissertation, Mengele investigated the related birth defects of cleft lip, palate, and jaw, malformations that had emerged as particularly interesting to German racial scientists since new surgical intervention could correct them cosmetically, hiding a trait that would have otherwise marked a racially compromised, that's their words, individual. Now, these dumb fucks did not know that cleft palates show up in all fucking races. Uh, they're all practicing junk science. Big circle jerk of fucking idiots. All trying to please Hitler by finding indisputable markers of impurity, non-Aryanness, so they could detect and weed out all non-Aryans and clean up Germany, make it stronger by ridding of its uh, foreign parasites. And, and actually, they're not idiots. They're uh, intelligent people. But just being in this fucking bizarro world and just in this horrible echo chamber where they just reinforce stupidity. Uh, backing up a little, the Nazis started taking new applications for party membership in 1937. And yeah, you heard that right, applications. Like they're running a fucking Wendy's franchise or something. When the Nazis came to power in 1933, people flocked to the new party. Some high ups, Nazis, uh, they saw this as a threat to the party's ideological purity. Cult, cult, cult. We must keep it pure. And the Nazis were definitely a big-ass cult. Uh, to fight the watering down of the Nazi party, the party decided in April of 1933 to impose a ban on new members for an undetermined period of time, except for Hitler youth members who had come of age after 1933. When it finally decided to relax the ban in 1937, new members applied in droves, just fucking stepping on each other to get uh, those applications submitted. And one of them was Joseph Mengele. In September of 1937, Mengele attended the ninth meeting of the German Society for Physical Anthropology, during the meeting, the organization decided to change its name to the German Society for Racial Research. There, Mengele would rub shoulders with some of the leading Nazi race scientists and shortly become one of them. His application was accepted in May of 1938. Around the same time, he joined the SS. But as a scientist, he had already been for many years at the front line of the Nazi project. Mengele submitted and defended his second dissertation in the summer of 1938. The paper would be published a year later in a distinguished journal, Journal for Human Heredity and Constitution Theory which caught the attention of the internationally respected Handbook of Human Genetic Biology. Well, well. Even as late as 1970, uh, Mengele's work was referenced in a Japanese publication on oral clefts and in a 1972 article in a British dental journal. Yeah, not a good look. Uh, but in the short term, this research had another effect. It aligned perfectly with the law for the prevention of hereditarily diseased offspring, which was passed in Germany in the summer of 1933. With Mengele's proof, the legislation would result in the forced sterilization of 375,000 individuals between its enactment in 1934 and the beginning of World War II uh, on September 1st, 1939. And more bullshit laws were going to follow. The marital health law promulgated in September of 1935 prohibited the marriage of a healthy person to anyone who had a hereditary condition, including those with oral clefts. Man, you have a fucking cleft palate, you can't even get married. 1936, uh, or excuse me, a 1936 modification of this law also prohibited marriage between healthy individuals and those who had been sterilized under other legislation. And once you're sterilized, you can't even get married. Here we fucking go. The real insanity begins. Germany's descent down an absurdly dark and bizarre path, picking up a little steam. Mengele, he's fucking running down that trail. June of 1938, Otmar von Verschur hires Mengele as a permanent assistant, saying in his letter of recommendation, that he just wants to keep fucking his fucking prized pupil, giving that doctor father dick. No, he said he had distinguished himself through extraordinary achievements. 
There, uh, Mengele would continue his research, doing the same thing for cleft palates with congenital heart defects. He also extended his work to the state by preparing expert opinions for health courts. <sighs> Fucking, it just gets more and more insane, even after going over this so many times. It's still just like, what? Uh, which had been created to enforce various racial and eugenic laws. Mengele conducted examinations and rendered judgments about an individual's paternity and racial acceptability. Weirdly enough, Mengele's judgment was, on average, more beneficial to those being examined than other experts doing the same job because Mengele would often find that the examinee was not the full Jew. It's so fucking weird that this actually happened. Like, imagine being forced to go down to some government office to some bullshit doctor so they could take a look at you, take some measurements, you know, check out your chin, look at your palate, you know, and think they'd determine what your race was. And if it was the wrong race, you don't get to get married. My God. Uh, one of the cases Mengele reviewed was that of Heinz Alexander who was accused of race defilement. You've been accused of race defilement. A criminal act involving sexual relations between an Aryan and a Jew. Alexander was, according to genealogical records, a full Jew, even though both his parents had converted to Christianity and raised him in that adopted religion. He had admitted to having had an affair with an Aryan woman over several years, but defended himself against the charge of race defilement by claiming that he'd been born out of wedlock and that his biological father was a German-blooded man an assertion that was apparently supported by a very large amount of written evidence, as well as by his blonde hair and blue eyes. The prosecuting attorney, so crazy, this was a fucking court case, requested that Alexander be examined by the Frankfurt Institute and Mengele should complete his racial evaluation. Using a similarity analysis, much like uh, that used to distinguish fraternal and identical twins, Mengele compared Alexander with his mother and with his legal Jewish father and also with photographs of the alleged non-Jewish biological father and concluded that Alexander should probably be viewed as a full Jew. Jesus, a strange theater. Fucking the, 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 <laughs> the drama these fucking morons put on to try and justify their outrageous and ridiculous beliefs. Uh, the court interestingly gave Mengele's opinion little weight and acquitted Alexander of the charge, uh, rendering Mengele's opinion as illogical because he himself said there was only a probability that Alexander's biological father was his full legal father. Acquitted because your dad is only probably your dad. What a gaggle of idiots. I think a lot of our politicians today in the U.S. are incredibly fucking dumb. Some of them, embarrassingly, let's uh, burn some books down. But we're still, thank God, not this stupid. Mengele got uh, some heavy-worded letters from the heads of the racial policy office of the Nazi party and what essentially amounted to a slap on the wrist for his so-called fickle testimony. Should, shouldn't have said should. Should have said he is definitely, he's, he's definitely a full-blooded Jew. Uh, evidently, Mengele learned from this mistake because after this, the courts will never question his racial determinations again. Ay, ay, ay. In the fall of 1939, Irene, that girl Mengele met in Leipzig, would start the steps she needed to uh, take to become the wife of an SS member. It's a whole process. She had to, of course, because they lived in this absurd and insane bizarro land, review her family history and her own racial and physical suitability as well, <laughs> as, well as get two letters of recommendation from people she knew that thought she was, in fact, a good German girl. The questionnaire contained a number of questions with binary choices, making clear the ideal qualities expected of an SS bride. Uh, George Slick wrote in support of the marriage, claiming that Irene was very reliable, as opposed to unreliable, uh, very fond of children, as opposed to not fond of children, uh, comradely, not domineering, thrifty, not wasteful, domestic, not flighty, vain, inefficient as opposed to inefficient. Uh, oh, excuse me, domestic, not flighty or vain 
and efficient, not inefficient. Uh, he wanted to describe Irene as well above the average in intellect and a model for every German girl in terms of spirit and character. For fuck's sake. On December 26, 1938, Irene would have her physical uh, examination now by an SS physician. One section of the form called for an inventory of 10 physical characteristics with a list of associated values in descending order of desirability. For instance, for body type, <laughs> the physician could choose muscular, plump, slim, or puny. The first is the most positive, right? Like, like imagine not being able to marry someone because the doctor said you were too puny. No, Mengele, you will not marry this puny little lady runt. She will only bear you weak, puny children, not worthy of a place in Hitler's kingdom. Nine, nine, she's too puny. Uh, for eye color, the following choices were available. Blue, gray, greenish, light brown, dark brown. Uh, Irene would end up being awarded nine out of 10 of the attributes with the highest, po- most positive value. So nice. Fuck yeah, bro. Only one did she get second highest instead of highest. And that was on hair form. Mm-mm. She got sleek, ugh, which was one step down from straight, but way better than wavy, curly, or dare I say it, crinkly. <laughs> what the fuck? No, Mingla, you will not marry this crinkle-headed trollop. She will make you, she will make only a mockery of you. You will have crinkle-headed clown children. You will have to ship off to the circus. <laughs> Irene then had to provide evidence about her family tree. Going all the way back to 1648. Make sure no sneaky Jews or gypsies have snuck in there. Unfortunately, uh, she had a compromised family history. Yeah, this is just scandalous. Her fucking nasty ass bastard paternal grandfather had been born out of wedlock. So there was no way to identify his father's racial line with absolute certainty. God, I had to stop down and, re- and uh, the recording. I had to start this part over because the first time I tried to share that information, I fucking threw up. Fucking punched the wall. I was so mad. So angry that she had the nerve to try and marry Mengele, not knowing what kind of gross shit she could be hiding in her blood. What a selfish, dirty, sleek head, almost crinkly bitch. Uh, Irene's compromised family history had serious consequences for the future couple. The SS engagement and marriage order provided that once the SS authorized a marriage, the names of the family of the SS member would be entered into this fucking special clan registry, which was maintained by the racial office of the SS. But Mengele was notified on March 9th, 1939, that because Irene's grandfather was unknown, there would be no listing. Nonetheless, he would go ahead with it. And had the Nazis won the war, this could have easily come back to haunt him. Like maybe his wife, any kids they would have had could have been eventually sent to concentration camps and just fucking killed for not definitely being 100% Aryan. On April 21st, 1939, Joseph, and who the fuck knows what she was, fake-ass German Irene bitch, are officially engaged. Disgusting. Might as well have put that wedding ring on a donkey hoof or a dog paw or something. Uh, Mengele spent the summer uh, semester of 1939 at the clinic for internal medicine at the University of Bonn now. Then he take a break to get married on July 28th, 1939 at a civil ceremony in a registry office. Then quietly in a small chapel. Oof, yeah. Uh, five weeks later, Germany would invade Poland. Uh, and I did that ugh, because again, remember the Nazis didn't, uh, they frowned on church. Why are you going, why are you going to church? Why not just worship Hitler? Uh, but Mengele, whose research would be essential to Nazi ambitions would not be drafted uh, during the Poland invasion. In February of 1940, he'd uh, fill in for Vershur uh, to teach his mentors class, human genetics as the basis for racial hygiene. Then in March, 1940, Vershur signed him on for another contract to continue to work with him. 
Uh, then it would be time uh, to head to the front lines in a different capacity. June 15th, 1940, Mengele joins the Medical Replace Battalion 9, stationed in Kassel, where he attended the military physician training course and passed. According to one of Mengele's friends, military duty sucked for him. Uh, because Mengele's superior officer made his subordinates crawl around for hours and clean clog the trains and things like that. So Mengele quickly began looking for a way out. On August 1st, 1940, Mengele was assigned to the Medical Inspectorate. His first post was the Central Immigration Office in Posen, where he worked as an expert in hereditary biology. But not really an expert since so much of his science is, you know, fucking crazy talk. Uh, the Office of Nazi Party Agency had been established at the beginning of October of 1939 to evaluate ethnic German immigrants to determine their suitability for resettlement. At this office, SS physicians conducted physical examinations of pr- prospective immigrants as well as an inventory of their assets that had to be uh, left behind in an interview that determined how well the person had nurtured their, quote, Germanness. Did they speak German? If so, how well? Did they belong to organizations that promoted German culture? How many? Those applicants who scored well were resettled in the newly acquired territories, right, where they could really get the fucking German train moving out there. Uh, Those less connected to their German background were settled in the Old Reich, where the old guard of Germans could fucking teach them to be more fully German. The office's judgments led to uh, grants of land as compensation and carelessness in its uh, work could bring grave consequences. The land is too scarce and too valuable to be assigned to families which will produce within a generation or two a stable full of idiots, imbeciles, epileptics, or schizophrenics, read one document. My God, they have no idea how genetic traits are passed from one generation to the next. Uh, n- nothing. They don't know anything. They just can't see that, the, that they are the actual imbeciles and idiots. Nazi Germany, truly where the inmates ran the asylum. Uh, that same year, around the end of 1940, Mengele would also be assigned to the Engineers Battalion of the Viking Division as an assistant troop physician taking over as troop physician in mid-October of 1941. He'll stay with the Viking Division until the beginning of 1943 when he's transferred to Berlin. With the Viking Division, Mengele would be exposed to new levels of cruelty. The Viking Division was made up of three groups. Nordland, created from Swedish, Danish, and Norwegian volunteers. Westland, composed of Dutch and Flemish volunteers. And Germania, composed mainly of ethnic Germans, many of whom had been indoctrinated from childhood in the Hitler Youth Program. They all fell under the command of Felix Steiner, who had received military awards for his performance leading the Waffen-SS Regiment in the invasion of Poland in 1939 and the invasion of France in 1940. Steiner was selected to lead the Viking Division by none other than Himmler himself. Himmler! Very weak chin. Real weak-looking uh, nerdy dude. Again, a lot of these top Nazis uh, did not look superior. I'm very confident that at my age now, 45, if I got into a fucking time machine and could go back to face Hitler in his physical prime and arm wrestle him, I'd break that little goofy bitch's arm. Uh, Trained in both offensive and defensive activities, the Viking engineers laid mines and cleared them, constructed fortifications and demolished them, built roads and fashioned ways to defeat man-made obstructions such as anti-tank ditches, as well as rivers and other natural impediments. But they were also a fighting force that battled in the front line, brutally. In the summer of 1941, the Viking division began its move towards the Soviet Union, part of the massive planned invasion, Operation Barbarossa, by the Nazis. Around July 2nd, the division would commit its first atrocities, killing an estimated several thousand Jews. The war diary of a unit in the area noted that the SS was indiscriminately shooting Russian soldiers and civilians in large numbers. Of course, the first large massacre by the Viking division took place in Ukraine near the Russian border, where they murdered around a thousand Jewish people after beating them. Shlomo Volkweitz, who managed to flee before being killed, described the scene. It was a hot day and many would pass out from the sharp order and many would pass out from the sharp odor of corpses, which did not bother our guards, right? They'd probably fucking been around this so much. 
The SS people stood around the pits, and from time to time they ordered someone, especially men with beards and sidelocks, to come out and kneel in front of them. And that's the way it's in the source, sidelocks. I don't know that that's how it's always said, but uh, anyway. Uh, to come out and kneel in front of them with sadistic pleasure, they hit their victim until he lay unconscious on the ground and they kicked them back into the pit. Sometimes family members tried to help the poor people, but then they often made their fate even worse. Some were t- uh, taken out of the grave and beaten to death with unimaginable brutality. The killers allowed the injured to succumb to their wounds slowly in pain and agony. This went on all day. I was deeply shaken by atrocities, the likes of which I never saw again. Other massacres would follow. Witnesses also reported multiple incidents of rape by the Viking division. Right, of course. Of course that happened. It was World War II. Of course there were incidents of rape, as we've learned. Uh, And although there's no evidence that Mengele himself participated in any of these crimes directly, he certainly knew about them. And he spent two years steeped in this uh, environment of cruelty and bloodshed, right? Hardening him. On July 14th, 1941, Mengele would even receive the Iron Cross second class along with 14 other division members. In a letter dated August 15th, Irene, right, bragged to a friend, now my husband finally has his longed for deployment. He is in the Ukraine. I must assume in all that heat. In the very first days, he already received the EK-2. The hardships must be incredible, yet their enthusiasm finally to be in battle and especially against this hereditary enemy can find no end. Hereditary enemy. Operation Barbarossa wouldn't be a successful invasion and the German army would find themselves languishing in freezing cold Russia through the winter of 1941 and 1942. In October of 1942, Mengele's commander, Max Schaefer, recommends him for promotion, writing a summary of his performance. A mature, upright, and absolutely reliable person who has the full confidence of his superiors and subordinates, popular amongst his comrades. As a troop physician, he has always worked successfully, even in the most difficult situations, with great circumspection and absolute readiness to serve so that the medical care of the battalion was always fully guaranteed. He was a solid fucking doctor, if you were also a Nazi. Uh, at the end of November, Mengele came very close to being killed in an air attack. Farmer, that didn't happen, but I guess somebody else would have just taken his place. Uh, as the unit log reported, saying, vigorous air activity again, Dr. Mengele buried. Bomb explodes next to Foxhole and buried him. The summer offensive failed to reach some desired oil fields, however. Uh, but the 6th Army Division had captured nearly the entire city of Stalingrad by the end of November. Success seemed assured, but then the Soviets successfully counterattacked November 19th. On Christmas 1942, happy holidays, by the way. Hope you're uh, really getting in the holiday spirit. (laughs) Uh, Every time I hear a reference to Christmas, I'm just like, what are we doing? Uh, The Viking Division was ordered to move towards Stalingrad to back up the German Army, battling the Soviet counteroffensive there. Around this time, Mengele received the Iron Cross First Class, which was awarded for valor in combat and could be conferred only on those who had already received the Iron Cross second class. At some point between January 2nd and January 20th, Mengele would be evacuated by air. Mengele's time in the Viking division is over. He'd been exposed to so much violence in two years. And rumors at Auschwitz would circulate later that Mengele was shell-shocked. Even if he was, there'd be no excuse for what was to come next. But what he saw could have played into what he would do, right? He was so desensitized, so accustomed to horror and death. In mid-January 1943, Mengele is flown to Berlin, where he contacts his mentor, Atmar von Verschur, who had recently taken control of the uh, Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Anthropology in Berlin. Uh, In Berlin, Mengele was assigned to an SS infantry replacement unit. Now back in Berlin, Mengele got to enjoy his old connections. He had the status of a guest scholar at the Kaiser uh, Wilhelm Institute, appeared on an internal list of birthdays of institute personnel. He'd give expert opinions to his old mentor, and work part-time in his old assistant role. Once again, Mengele was immersed right back into the academic world of Nazi race, quote-unquote, science. At this point, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute was pivoting, 
They'd previously been occupied with studying human heredity, uh, heredity the characteristics of normal and not normal heredity traits, and uh, how the environment affected those traits. Now they were interested in how a genetic disposition became a physical trait. More than ever, they were finding that the old paradigm of dominant or recessive traits didn't account for things like mutations, population genetics, and developmental physiology. Now, rather than heredity, what they wanted to study was the interaction between a person's genetic makeup and their physical traits. And this meant that research on animals, as in humans, would be necessary. So in May of 1943, now 32-year-old Mengele is assigned to go to Auschwitz when uh, Benno Adolf, the physician whose place Mengele took, contacted or contracted scarlet fever at the end of April 1943 and had to be replaced. At Auschwitz, Mengele would be as prevalent as the diseases he was trying to eradicate, there from the first moments of the inmates' arrivals until their deaths. As a camp physician, he carried out selections upon the arrival of new inmates. Even after these inmates had been selected for internment at Auschwitz, Mengele was in charge of routinely deciding which admitted inmates would be killed anyway. So what did this evil selection process look like? In 1982, Rudolf Verba, a Slovak Jewish biochemist who miraculously escaped Auschwitz with another man in April 1944, it's a long story, but an amazing tale, described how the arrival of a train and its unloading proceeded. Until the spring of 1944, the ramp was a rail siding located uh, outside the Birkenau camp at the site of the Auschwitz freight station. When a transport was announced, a unit from the guard battalion was deployed. The locomotive would be detached from the rail cars and the SS guard unit would surround the ramp completely to prevent escape and secure valuables thrown from the train. The doors of the train cars would be opened and all the prisoners would be ordered out. A careful count was conducted and the prisoners would be divided into two lines, men in one, women and children in the other. These groups would be made to file past the camp physician on duty, often Mengele, who would carry out the selection, dividing the oncoming line to the left and right, life and death. The weak, the sick, the elderly, the young, and the pregnant were selected for death. Mothers with young children condemned to die alongside their offspring. Man, to be the guy who made those decisions, to be the one who decided who out of hundreds of thousands of arrivals got to live another day, like who got to live, right? Who got to die? If you had any kind of fucking conscience, and just didn't allow yourself to go completely just numb and dead inside, wouldn't the faces of all those people that you sent to the chambers, right, just fucking haunt you for the rest of your life that you had gassed? But that didn't happen to Mengele because this guy hated Jews until the day he died and fully believed he was just following orders, just doing his job until the day he died. He had a lot of psychological incentive to hold on to that belief. Right? If he ever stopped believing that, uh, he would have had to face the fact that he was a fucking monster who needlessly and callously helped kill hundreds of thousands of innocent human, human beings. Uh, three groups would have been formed after the selection. Women who were to be admitted to the camp, men who were to be uh, admitted to the camp, and those men, women, and children who were to be gassed immediately. Those who were to be admitted were ma- marched the short distance to Birkenau, and those doomed to die were taken by truck to one of the two gas chamber and crematorium complexes nearby. A group of prisoners gathered the luggage and other belongings and transported the loot to the warehouses, uh, nicknamed Canada where it'd be inventoried and made available for local use or transported back to Germany for distribution. So strange that they called it Canada. Put, put their belongings in Canada, just like the Canadians to steal all the Jew things. <laughs> ah, get it? No, no one gets it. Uh, crew entered the trains and cleaned them. Uh, clerks completed and checked all paperwork. Depending on the size of the transport, the entire operation could be over in an hour or two hours. And for every minute of that hour or two, in order to keep things moving as efficiently as possible, the Nazis told inmates lies and reassurances, saying nothing bad was going to happen to them so long as they were, uh, uh, you know, complacent, or so long as they followed orders, you know, just to keep them as complacent as possible. Uh, Richard Bach, fucking finally a dick shows up. I was getting nervous. 
Uh, Dick Bach was a member of the motor pool at Auschwitz who was responsible for conveying prisoners to the gas chamber complex. And he would describe for a court how he had witnessed Mengele on the ramp later. Said there were tracks and the train stood there. And over there, I saw Mengele. And there were a couple of officers. I didn't know all of them. And I saw Mengele there and the rest of them. Then they talked a bit at first and I leaned against my truck, leaned against the fender and looked on. Mengele said, doctors and pharmacists forward. And then the men came slowly. Real gentlemen came forward. Their suits are wrinkled, but they were better dressed. Some wore glasses. They were elegant people, it seemed. And then Mengele made a gesture like that. In the court hearing, Bach made a uh, uh, gesture with his thumb over his left shoulder. Right, they lived. And then Dick Bach uh, kept describing, saying, uh, a blonde woman was the, first, was the very first to come. I looked at her so closely. I would recognize her even today. I immediately thought uh, that was the film actress, Lillian Harvey. And then Mengele said to her, how old? And she said, 29. Then Mengele asked, are you pregnant? She said, yes. Then Mengele said, in what month? She said, in the ninth. And then Mengele did so. Meaning Mengele gestured with his thumb, this time to the right, death. Right, just so completely heartless. Right, just wasn't right for his experiment, so kill her. And he says, uh, as she walked over there, over the tracks, over to the right, there came a young man, 24 years old. Healthy, strong? Mengele asked. He said, yes. Then Mengele did so with the thumb, always with the thumb. He did so over and over. Then he went over to where the doctors were standing, right? Left in that case, so the man lived, at least for the time being, over and over, right? Left, right, life, death. Apparently this went on for uh, a long time. And then eventually Mengele got fucking bored, according to this guy. Towards the end, he ended up just sending everybody from the rest of the train to the right. Like he just didn't want to be bothered with the selection process anymore. He had what he wanted for the day, so everyone else could just, you know, die and save him the extra work. Uh, while all this went on, if anyone tried to approach him to save their family, Mengele dismissed them with a wave of his hand. Just, I have no time. He would say, I have no time. The vast majority of people who encountered Mengele at the ramps shortly after arriving in Auschwitz did not survive. The ones who did survive were Mengele's recruits, a group of physicians, anthropologists, technicians, other medical professionals, many who probably got uh, much better marks in school than he did, uh, people who could help his research. Sometimes he'd even go into the office where the records of the prisoner's employments were kept and request someone with a specific specialty. Mengele, like all the camp physicians, also regularly conducted selections inside the camp and in camp infirmaries, both to make room for arriving inmates and to rid the camp of unproductive people who were now too ill or weak to work. As one inmate would describe, it was a revolving turntable of death. Those inside the camp selected for the gas chambers were selected according to a set of criteria that the physicians agreed on, evidence of starvation, lack of fatty tissue in the buttocks, suspicion of having tuberculosis, and accidents that caused broken bones, to name a few. Whenever Mengele showed up at the infirmary, everyone there was immediately terrified. They knew that their fate rested in his hands. Just literally working these people to death, taking every last ounce of usefulness from them, then flippantly sending them to the gas chamber without even as much as a thank you for the service, for the help. One time, Mengele carried out a selection by submitting a group of children to a height test, a board suspended at a specific height under which the children were forced to walk. And those too short, right, to hit the mark, fucking off to their deaths. Even some of the worst serial killers we've covered at least seem to have had a soft spot for little children. Uh, when Mengele didn't seem to perform this job, or while Mengele didn't seem to perform this job more often than other camp physicians, witnesses at the time noted he was an example to his colleagues who found the selection process difficult because he didn't. If someone was struggling with the mental load of sending literally thousands of people and so many children to their deaths, Mengele was the one who would take them aside and convince them of the necessity of eliminating the Jews. This fucker was all in. And that is not a reference to last week's private investigator. 
on hating Jewish people. Truly told himself and others, these people were a dangerous scourge, right? They needed to die. Bet that motherfucker slept like a baby at night. Mengele would also tell them that since the Jews were already supposed to be eradicated, the doctors weren't killing anyone. They weren't killing them by deciding their fates on the ramps or elsewhere. They were just deciding the timing. That's all. He basically said that the Jews were effectively dead upon arrival. And man, what a great rationalization to alleviate any possible guilt. But though Mengele and many other physicians would participate in the same horrific selection process, Mengele's research institute was entirely unique. Let's talk about his lab. It was staffed, like we said, with inmates who were specialists in a wide variety of fields, along with technical assistants, note takers, nurses. At the beginning of his time there, he dedicated a barrack in the so-called gypsy camp where Roma people were imprisoned as his laboratory, his laboratory, and supplied it with medical instruments and equipment. The scientific program of this institute included the treatment of oral cancer, twin research, the collection of eyes from individuals with heterochromia, uh, eyes of different colors, uh, experiments relating to eye color, the collection of blood samples for a project on specific proteins, the collection of growth abnormalities like dwarfism and gigantism, and physical abnormalities like clubfoots and hunchbacks, and the preservation of Jewish skeletons, human embryos, and deceased newborns. All of this wouldn't only go towards Mengele's personal research. His studies would also be shared for collaboration with colleagues at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute and with medical schools for training the next generations of fuckhead Nazi physicians. It's just all normalized. Mengele was able to research so much uh, because he had probably the most access of anyone in human history to human beings, time, equipment, and staff with no ethical obligations. Since roughly 750,000 people were, were uh, deported to Auschwitz during Mengele's time there, he had a large number of twins available to him uh, just like any other rare condition that affects, you know, human beings. Other people not working in these circumstances might have had to travel thousands of miles for what Mengele could find right outside his lab's doors. So what would be his horrible first project? Though it's difficult to reconstruct, so much happened at lightning speed. Historians think it had something to do with the specimen Mengele sent to SS medical to an SS medical laboratory in June of 1944. This specimen was the fucking head of a 12-year-old boy. He wanted it taken apart to look at a rare disease which was rampant in the gypsy camp when Mengele arrived in the summer of 1943, an illness called Noma. Oof. If you want to fuck your sleep up tonight, do an image search for this disease. N-O-M-A. Seeing the pictures like legitimately made me feel weak in the knees. The poor bastards who get this shit, and some people still get it today, it's a rapidly progressive, often fatal infection of the mouth and face that generally only affects malnourished, like severely malnourished children. The mucous membranes of the mouth develop ulcers followed by rapid, painful tissue degeneration and necrosis of the tissues of the bones in the face. Brought on by a combination of severe malnutrition, right? A lot of vitamin deficiencies and very poor sanitary conditions. This disease starts as a swelling in the mouth, eventually grows to the cheeks and lips. And within just days, it can create necrotic lesions, rotting the tissue and exposing the bones of the face and teeth. Currently, it virtually only occurs in severely underdeveloped third world tropical countries. And it is fucking brutal and almost always fatal. You know, over 90% of the people who get it die. A Czech inmate physician and then the smaller, less than 10% severely disfigured. Uh, a Czech inmate physician, Dr. Jan Sespiva, who worked in the gypsy camp hospital, testified after the war about the effects of Noma saying, whole chunks of flesh would come off the affected areas. Lower jaw was also affected. I never saw such severe cases of gangrene of the cheek. Specimens of, specimens of heads of diseased children were prepared for the SS Academy at Graz. The heads were preserved in formaldehyde. In 1943, there had been a wide outbreak, almost entirely amongst children. 
Man, nature, man. Nature truly does not give a fuck how down on your luck you already are. It'll pile more misery onto anybody. Already at a fucking death camp? Parents likely already dead? Surrounded by sadistic camp guards who don't even think you're human and torture you with insane experiments? Not enough, motherfucker! Have a helping anoma. Have your fucking jaw rot off your face while you live on hell on earth, kid. Man, too bad that these kids couldn't have been handed a copy of The Secret, right? God, if only that book had been written in time. Do you remember that book written by that unbelievably tone-deaf Australian cunt, Rhonda Byrne? Over 30 million copies sold of that law of attraction garbage. And when I tried to read it, I would think of shit like this, right? This book is all about like, want your life to be amazing? Just manifest it. That's all. Mind over matter. You create your own reality. (laughs) Just manifest yourself the fuck out of a concentration camp. Just manifest your job back together, you silly goose. Just ask, believe, and receive, baby. That's how the universe works. If it's not working, you just don't believe enough. You're not trying hard. I feel like the subtitle of The Secret should have been Fuck Empathy and Compassion. If you're winning, it's 100% because you're trying harder than everybody else. Anyway, Mengele showed great interest in the Noma research, recruiting an inmate photographer, Wilhelm Brass, to photograph a number of children afflicted with the disease, as well as corpses of children who had died from it. Come on, smile for the camera, Elijah. You're rotting lower jaw, no excuse not to. Use your other hand to fucking push it up against your, your upper jaw to smile if you have no frowning. Use one hand to fucking push up your jaw, the other hand to push your rotting cheek flesh up. Smile, goddammit. Uh, other prisoners were tasked with removing the heads from the bodies of uh, these kids for preservation. Yeesh. Partially as a result of Mengele's research, a new treatment for Noma was developed consisting of a combination of malaria injections and doses of a drug whose trade name was Norva, Nor, ah, Novar Sinobenzol, with most promising results. But of course, that treatment would not have been needed if these kids hadn't been put in the fucking camps in the first place where they were subjected to extremely unhygienic conditions and starved. Uh, but what Mengele was arguably most interested in, what he would go down in history for, was not this kind of research, but his research on twins. Some historians would hypothesize that Mengele was looking for the secret of multiple births, ensuring every German woman that reproduced gave birth to twins or triplets, because that would make the master race grow so much faster, right? So much more efficiently than ever. Unlocking that secret would have made his Hitler god so proud of him. This is what I'm talking about, every Aryan broodmare. Popping out two twin future Thule gods every year until they hit the menopause and then, you know, we just, we replace them with new hot Aryan power pussies. And, and that is how we grow. That is how we rule the world. That is how we do it, baby. Let's fucking go. More strong, pure babies than anyone else. Tall, blonde, powerful Aryans. And after he says the last part, his fucking eyes quickly scan the room, daring anyone to snicker because he's short, dark-haired, not even a little bit powerfully built. Mengele's interest. And twins, as we learned, had gone back many years. Twins were like biological science experiments. One could be used as the control group while the other was experimented on and you didn't have to worry about what factors influenced the experiment since you had a baseline, right? AKA genetically similar other person. Studies on twins would be used throughout the Third Reich to prove the heritability of everything from epilepsy, criminality, memory, hernias, tuberculosis, cancer, schizophrenia, uh, randomly divorce, Divorces in, I guess, like how can, you know, raising one twin in a different way than another can increase or decrease the odds of divorce later in life. Uh, turns out eating too much candy as a kid, excuse me, uh, increases your odds for divorce uh, later in life, obviously, uh, between 35 and 
This one Nazi study actually was proven true many years later in subsequent studies. Too much sugar growing up does uh, affect your brain in a lot of ways, actually, uh, considerably. A more than average sugar intake, specifically uh, an average of more than 130 grams of sugar a day between the ages of 8 and 15, has been linked over and over to increased odds of divorce, criminality, cancer, diabetes and obesity, not surprisingly, uh, heart disease, psychopathy, and an IQ drop of anywhere from 15 to 25%. So maybe a lot of us should be worried. Uh, One 20-ounce bottle of Mountain Dew, uh, 77 grams of sugar. One large chocolate milkshake, around 55 grams of sugar. Fucking boom, 132 grams. That's it for the day. So are you nervous now about how much shit you ate as a kid? Well, you shouldn't be because I made all that up. Except the calories in Mountain Dew and large chocolate uh, milkshake. Isn't that insane? That is a lot of sugar. The American Heart Association recommends no more than six teaspoons, aka 25 grams of added sugar a day for women and nine teaspoons, 36 grams for men. One 20-ounce bottle of Mountain Dew. Over 19 teaspoons of added sugar. How is it even still liquid? It should just slowly just kind of drool out of the bottle like a thick slime. I bet you Mountain Dew is owned by Bear Evil Incorporated. Part of an Agenda 21 depopulation program. Damn you, Illuminati! I'm kidding. Everybody knows that, right? Uh, Back to Nazi twin studies. A lot of twin studies would take place at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, which uh, even received report from abroad with the Rockefeller Foundation donating money for twin research into the into the mid-1930s. Uh, uh, it wasn't until Auschwitz and Mengele that twin research seemed like a real possibility for rapid scientific advancement. For one thing, twin research requires legions of people, physicians, record keepers, people to do population surveys and more. You also need the permission of the twins and their parents. Now Mengele had the people to help and didn't need the permission. Also had access to plenty of twins. So many new inmates coming almost every day. And the biggest difference, zero ethical boundaries on research. Mengele knew it was an opportunity like no other. Hans Munch uh, recalled uh, Mengele saying that not to utilize the possibilities Auschwitz offered would be a sin, a crime, and totally irresponsible towards science. Man, what mental hurdles we meat sacks are capable of jumping to rationalize whatever evil acts we want to commit. I mean, I see what he's trying to say in the sense of cold, emotionless lab, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, research like rat like uh but to not actually uh or to actually think that not medically torturing twins is a sin and irresponsible that's that's wow wow uh, according to dr horst fisher another physician at auschwitz Mengele often spoke enthusiastically of his scientific work and about the material that was available to him describing a unique opportunity that would never again be offered he fucking loved this loved doing whatever he wanted to do to jewish children and right uh jewish twins i guess of any age people in general who were not uh, Aryan. To assist him in his research, he recruited a Polish anthropologist, Dr. Martina Pusna, or Pusnia, or uh, Pusina. There we go. Uh, she had been arrested in March 1943 as a member of the Polish underground and then had been sent in August to Auschwitz and she could either help Mengele or, you know, she could die. Later, after she settled in London following the war, she would be interviewed by German investigators and she told him about Mengele's pitch to her. Said Mengele made it clear that he was ultimately interested in all types of twins. It was obvious that the special circumstances of a concentration camp the size of Birkenau offered unrivaled opportunities for the availability of a large number of twins. In other words, work should be done on a large scale in order to obtain results of recognized validity by statistical methods. Mengele described to me the procedures to be followed. Especially skull measurements should be taken, i.e. the length and width of the skull, and of course, stature. 
There was also a multi-point screening scheme, which, for example, included the shape of the ears, of the nose, color of the eyes, and similar features. Uh, These values always had to be collected by means of a questionnaire. Mangala also provided me with measuring instruments, in particular calipers. I was given a special room for my work, and an inmate girl was provided to me to record the results of the measurements. While working, I had to wear a white lab coat like a doctor's. There was also a former anthropology student available who had already taken measurements with the gypsies before I began my work. So we worked together for the measurements. We measured practically every day. Almost every day, more twins were brought to the lab. The day before, a convoy would take them to be disinfected, then give them a meal so they could be in good shape for examination. How kind. In the room, they would lie down on a white bed with the wax cloth where uh, typists took notes. Physicians constantly gave orders. Take off your clothes. Lie on your stomach. Turn on your back. They never knew when something was coming. You know, a needle, a cold stethoscope, or worse. Examinations could last several hours or more in unheated rooms while the twins were naked. Researchers had to fill out a form with 96 questions for each twin they examined and wonder how many tears were shed in those rooms. They even took plaster molds of the twins' teeth. The twins were fingerprinted, had blood drawn, sometimes in massive quantities, before they were sent back to the barracks where they might be selected for death that same day. Uh, One subject of these experiments, listed as Mrs. M, would uh, would later say about the experiments conducted on her, I suffered immense pain and cruelty from these experiments. They were inhuman, but because of them, I survived. As bad as the experiments were, without them, I would not be here today to write this. And to be clear before I continue, uh, these experiments didn't save her in some type of, you know, medically beneficial sense. They saved her in the sense that without Mengele being interested in cutting, probing, and sticking her with needles, she would have instead just been immediately sent to the gas chambers. She says, now that I am emotionally a lot stronger, I would like to describe a little more details about my horrible experiments, which no matter how hard I'm trying, I never get over it as long as I live. I was born November 23rd, 1930. I was about five weeks in Auschwitz alone, separated from my family, my parents, two sisters and two brothers, when Dr. Mengele pulled me out of a queue as we were on the way from the sea camp, uh, sea logger says camp, to the gas chamber. I was the only one picked that day personally by Mengele and his assistant. They took me to his laboratory where I met other children. They were screaming from pain, black and blue bodies covered with blood. I collapsed from horror and terror and fainted. A bucket of cold water was thrown on me to revive me. My God, what she saw when she first showed up was so fucking horrific. Before anything was done to her, she fainted from the mere sight of all this pain and torture. And this is a a teenager, a child enduring this, watching other children who've been enduring it. She continues, as soon as I stood up, I was whipped with a leather whip, which broke my flesh. Then I was told the whipping was a sample of what I would receive if I did not follow instructions and orders. I was used as a guinea pig for medical experiments. I was never, ever given painkillers or anesthetics. Every day I suffered excruciating pain. I was injected with drugs and chemicals. My body most of the time was connected to tubes, which inserted some drugs into my body. Many days I was tied up for hours. Some days they made cuts into my body and left the wounds open for them to study. Most of the time there was nothing to eat. Every day my body was numb with pain. There was no more skin left on my body for them to put injections or tubes. Fucking no painkillers for this shit. One day we woke up and the place was empty. We were left with open infected wounds with no food. We were all half dead with no energy or life in us. One day Russian soldiers tried to shake me to see if I was alive or dead. They felt a tiny beat in my heart and quickly picked me up and took me to a hospital. Oh man, thank God. Uh, Mrs. M made it out alive, but few others would. German medical schools uh, had had a constant flow of fresh cadavers since the mid-1930s when the bodies of victims were brought into various institutions for dissection, but few people had ever had access to the bodies of twins at the same time and certainly not so many. 
Inmate pathologists would form uh, would perform autopsies on sets of twins who were killed by direct injection of chloroform into the heart. Many twins were killed quickly, specifically so they could be studied after their deaths. Some were instructed to remove the eyes and send the specimens to the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. Mengele would take dozens of eyes and preserve them, many of them with heterochromia. As far as I know, these eyes were taken from victims after they were dead. Kind of one of the one of the few tiny bright spots in this story, I guess. Uh, but Mengele's experiments with eyes didn't stop there. He wanted to know about the range of eye colors, how children weren't born with one of their parents' eye colors, but sometimes a combination, or a different ancestor's eye color, or, for example, how a baby could have blue eyes that later darkened to brown. One witness, a Polish inmate physician named Rudolf Diem, stated that Mengele ordered the inmate physicians, including myself, to put drops into the eyes of people with different color irises. I know that these drops contained adrenaline, something Mengele spoke of himself. He reckoned that the use of these drops would cause a change in eye color. If the substance was adrenaline, it brought on terrible side effects, uh, rise in blood pressure, weakness, fainting, perspiration, change in heart rate, shaking, all of which would have been especially terrifying and painful to a small child. All of this was to figure out how eye color could be used to make better judgments about a person's race and family connections. As he undertook all these different experiments, Mengele supplied his colleagues with thousands of medical and biological samples. One hunchback man and his son who had a deformed foot would be examined alive and then, now that they had what they needed, quickly killed and their remains sent to an anthropological museum in Berlin. Mengele's research did not stop there. Although gynecology was not his specialty, Mengele conducted experiments on pregnant women. For instance, he had them injected with typhoid just to determine whether their children would then be born with the infection as well. Ruth Elias was pregnant when she was transferred from a Nazi ghetto located in Czechoslovakia to Auschwitz. And she said, I delivered a beautiful big blonde girl, but Mengele ordered that my breast be bound so that, as he said, we can see how long a newborn baby can survive without food. After watching her baby suffer for several days, a female Czech doctor gave Elias a syringe with an overdose of morphine to end the child's agony. Fuck. Sure, Ruth was haunted by that shit for the rest of her fucking life. How especially cruel that he made Ruth witness her own child's starvation. Like, how was that part important? The, the, the part where she was still charged with holding her baby that she could not breastfeed. Uh, how was that scientifically important? How was it anything other than just added cruelty and suffering for both mother and child? Speaking of mothers and children, Mengele's wife, Irene, would visit Mengele in August of 1943, during which uh, she told him that she was pregnant. I uh, wonder if he uh, ever asked her if they could perform experiments on their baby. Or wonder if he talked to her about uh, experiments he'd been doing on other babies. I bet that would be fun for her to think about, her husband killing babies while she grows his inside of her. Also, how lovely that the universe granted them a child while so many great people struggle to conceive. Right? Life is so fair all the time. Just gotta fucking manifest what you want. If you're not getting it, if you end up in, say, a concentration camp, what part do you want it to be there? That's a secret. Uh, In late 1943, Mengele makes a name for himself as a disease fighter and he devises a technique for eradicating typhus. A non-Jewish Austrian inmate physician named Ella Lingens, who was imprisoned for having helped Jews in Vienna, would describe it this way in her 1948 memoir. In fact, typhus was only stamped out when Dr. Mengele, the ruthless cynic, became camp doctor. He collected the 1,500 worst cases amongst the Jewish patients in a hospital hut and sent them to the gas chamber. Thus, he obtained an empty hut, which was disinfected and supplied with new straw mattresses and clean blankets. Then the patients of the nearest hut were deloused, examined, and taken naked into the vermin-free hut, which was put out of bounds. The same with the next hut, and so on until everything was clean. Given the circumstances, this was the correct way of fighting and overcoming the epidemic. Uh, But that the camp authorities did not think it necessary to build a new hut for the purpose, that the cleaning up began with the murder of 1,500 Jewish women. 
That was part of the horror of a situation in which everything was perverted, in which everything was perverted from its meaning, in which evil was good and good was evil. Essentially, Mengele solved the problem by ordering one block gassed and their barracks fumigated. Then he moved the next block over and fumigated their barracks. And that was repeated for each block until the last one was clean and ready for a new shipment of workers. Uh, He did this again a few months later during a scarlet fever outbreak amongst Hungarian Jews and a measles epidemic in the Jewish children's block. So that's how he would uh, uh, eradicate an outbreak of a dangerous disease. Just fucking kill everyone in the area uh, of the person who had it. What What a genius. What a great doctor. Uh, around Christmas, 1943, and Merry Christmas again, by the way, uh, Mengele would fall ill and uh, be diagnosed with typhus on Christmas Eve, which meant he could not travel to visit his pregnant wife. Oh, man. Unfortunately, he'd make a full recovery. Uh, Mengele wrote to Irene on April 26, 1944, to report that he'd been awarded the War Service Cross second class with swords. Oh, oh my. An award acknowledging wartime service that wasn't due to combat against the enemy. He was awarded this uh, for combating that typhus epidemic. My God. He's given this medal just because he fucking just murdered 1,500 people. How did, like, like, like no one else could think of that. Oh man, he's, of course he's awarded a medal for that in this upside down uh, world that Nazis created and lived in. Uh, normally this medal would have been uh, uh, awarded on Hitler's birthday, April 20th, but Mengele was away from Auschwitz visiting Irene and meeting his newborn son, Rolf, for the first time. Loving the names in this suck. Rolf, Walburga, Dr. Hamburger. Uh, after the visit, uh, Dick Bach. Uh, after the visit, uh, Mengele stopped in Berlin to rub shoulders with his old colleagues. He would then write to Irene that he intended to slow down when he got back. Not for moral reasons, of course, but because this insanely superior master race individual was having health problems again. Uh, he had no idea that he was about to enter the most intense period in the history of Auschwitz. Within four months, more than 400,000 Jews would arrive from Hungary, and Mengele would be called to play his part in their murders. Let's now meet another one of his victims. In the spring of 1944, Eva Kor arrived at Auschwitz. She was 10 years old. And if her name sounds familiar, we met her randomly in a Time Sucker update in the Israel Keys episode, Suck 228 randomly. Then mentioned uh, mentioned her very briefly in episode 296, The Holocaust Part 1, then got an update on her in uh, Part 2, the following episode. After being separated from her family and led to a separate area with her twin sister, Miriam, she and a group of twins were led to a large separate area where they were ordered to undress. All of the twins were there, were then given short haircuts. And the barber explained that that was a privilege. How lucky. They got to have short hair instead of having their heads completely shaved like uh, almost everybody else. Their clothes were returned with the big red cross painted on the back, identifying them as part of the experiments. Then the twins, like other camp inmates, were given their shitty number tattoos. Uh, When they were led to the barracks after this, a woman reached out to them asking where they were from. And for merely asking this question, it seems, a guard shot and killed that woman on the spot. Welcome to hell, girls. In the barracks, Eva learned from the other twins that there were two kinds of experiments, one that dealt with genetics and one that dealt with germs. In the germ experiments, Mengele would inject one twin with the germ. If the twin died, he would kill the other twin in order to compare the organs during autopsy. Yee! June or July, uh, Eva was injected with some kind of deadly germ. She didn't know that. She became ill with a very high fever, but tried to hide it since she knew that sick children were taken uh, to the hospital and never came back. Uh, She would eventually be sent to the hospital, though, which was filled with what she described as moving and screaming skeletons. Again, she is 10 years old. Twice a week, a truck would come to, quote, Eva, pick up the living dead. Uh, The people were just thrown in heaps like fucking sacks of potatoes. The day after she arrived, a team of five doctors, including Mengele, came to study her. They looked at her chart and Mengele said sarcastically right in fucking front of her. "Uh, She is so young. Too bad. She only has two weeks to live. The doctors never examined her or ran any tests. They didn't give her any treatment for two weeks. She just lay in her hospital bed suffering. 
She was given no food, no medication, uh, almost no water, but she wouldn't die. She promised herself that she would do anything to get back to her sister, Miriam. She realized she had to convince the doctors that she was getting well, so she fiddled with the thermometers until it looked like her fever had gradually disappeared. Clever fucking kid. Uh, it took her three weeks, you know, uh, to get her fake temperature back to normal. And three weeks later, she was released and reunited with Miriam, who uh, was then very ill herself. And now she and her sister had to go back to being one of Mangala's uh, twins with a regimented experimental routine. They awoke every morning at five and helped the younger twins dress. There were twins there as young as just a year old in the barracks. Fucking babies and toddlers getting poked and prodded and cut and injected by evil motherfuckers who as doctors should have known better. People who chose to ignore actual science that does not point in any way, shape or form to genetic Germans being superior to fucking anyone. By 6 a.m., these children had to be standing outside for roll calls with everyone accounted for, whether dead or alive. The bodies of dead children had to be brought out and counted as well, had to be brought out by other kids. According to Eva, uh, Mengele became very angry when a child died in bed because of the conditions of the camp. He didn't care about these kids in a normal, loving way. These deaths just meant the loss of valuable uh, guinea pigs for his medical experiments. After roll call, uh, they would get some food. I'm sure it tasted great. Probably a bunch of uh, Wahlberger casserole. And they'd be taken to the labs for tests. On one occasion while waiting in the lab, Eva saw a twin faint. She was being tested to see how much blood could be taken before death occurred. Jesus. Three times a week, they were taken to Barrack 10, where they were uh, assembled naked in an enormous room. 10 to 12 doctors would now study them, making notes about the measurements of their different body parts. One of the twins, who was 19 years old, told them about some especially horrific experiments involving a set of teenage boys and teenage girls. Cross blood transfusions were carried out in an attempt to make boys into girls and girls into boys. And also some of the boys were crudely castrated to try to turn them into girls. Uh, Surprise, surprise. That's not exactly how you do it. Infections would then uh, lead to death. Eva also heard about a set of uh, gypsy twins who were brought back from Mengele's lab after they'd been sewn together back to back. With another set of twins, Mengele attempted to turn them into Siamese twins by connecting some of their blood vessels and organs, and somehow they fucking survived this initial operation. Not for long, the twins screamed, quote, day and night, as infection set in, and after three days of agony, they died. Eva was also told of how Mengele attempted to connect the urinary tract of a seven-year-old to her own colon. Of course, that little girl died horribly. Uh, And while Mengele was perpetuating all this horrific shit, he was also finding time to relax with his family. SS officers who worked at Auschwitz could relax at the Solahuta, small subcamp of Auschwitz, about 30 kilometers from the main camp, less than 20 miles, kind of a rustic getaway. Uh, these officers could enjoy the company of their spouses and family members, uh, was even encouraged, since the administration thought it would encourage officers' morale. Irene visited Mengele uh, here twice, and his father visited at least once. I wonder how much of his work Mengele filled them in on. Vac has been very good. Uh, just yesterday, I kept two young children alive for two days after sewing their eyelids and their penises together. We are learning so much about the human body. Yay, science! Heil Hitler! I also kept three children alive uh, after cutting their arms off and mixing them up and then putting them back on, but sometimes backwards, sometimes on a different body. It's like it's like I have my own Mr. Potato Head doll collection. It's, it's wonderful. Only annoying part is the constant crybaby screaming, and they just want to hold still for the photos. But enough about me. What have you been up to? It's fucking insane what he was doing. Irene's first visit came exactly one week after the complete liquidation of what was called the Gypsy Family Camp. Almost 3,000 men, women, and children were taken to the gas chambers. Their bodies burned in the open pit next to the crematorium. No clue if Irene knew anything about that. 
Uh, she's probably busy enjoying all the things Auschwitz had to offer for its officers and families. There was a commissary, House 7, where SS families could shop for food. Uh, the men serving in the camp had access to fresh vegetables and fruit from local gardens and orchards. Clothing and shoes were available, presumably from the camp stores of ex- uh, appropriated property. And tailors and shoemakers at the camp would alter and repair items for SS members and their families. Dirty laundry, linens taken to the camp laundry. Prisoners available to clean them, of course. Uh, and also to remodel and repair SS homes, stock coal cellars, work in the gardens, uh, distribute fresh water for washing and cooking since the well water was rusty. How soul-crushing for them to have to do all this shit for the people who were torturing and killing their families. All right, for people who had taken everything from them, people who they knew would eventually try to kill them. Just a matter of time if the war wasn't won. An inmate named Arthur Radvansky, who arrived in October of 1942, would remember that he had contact with Mengele several times a week preparing his bath, cleaning his suit, and giving him massages. Massages? Wonder how often he thought about strangling him, bashing his head in. Ah, could you fuck that knot out between my shoulder blades? I get so much tension there from wearing myself out day in and day out, zipping the gypsies, beating the old Jew women with the clubs and whatnot. Insane that these very dark jokes are fucking portraying something no more evil than what these guys actually did and did often. I think I've said it before, but I think some Holocaust deniers deny the Holocaust because they struggle to process how it would be possible for people to be treated this inhumanely on such a large scale by so many. I mean, I think they're also usually racist as fuck and, you know, lazy thinking, hateful, worthless bastards, but also very hard to comprehend this level of atrocity. Uh, For me, for me, it is. It's just like, what? On September 1st, 1944, a new troop hospital in Auschwitz is dedicated, located east of the area that housed the SS Guard Battalion. The nearly 1 million square foot compound comprised nine separate buildings and was designed to offer comprehensive health services to a large community with a capacity of 250 beds. It included operating rooms, a dental clinic, facilities to provide care for women, babies, children, those with infectious diseases, as well as lodging for doctors and nurses, a kitchen, laundry, and garages. Though Irene, who was still visiting, had planned to return to Freiburg on September 11th, she fell ill with diphtheria. Uh, She may have already felt ill on September 5th, the day 1,019 Jews arrived from the Netherlands. Among them was a family, mother, father, two daughters, though only the father would survive the war. The mother would die in January of 1945. The two daughters would perish in Bergen-Belsen, that concentration camp. The younger daughter, you might recognize her name, Anne Frank. While Irene was sick, uh, Mengele visited her uh, three times a day in the new hospital. Ah, what a sweetheart. Uh, And don't worry, she'll pull through. Uh, Now 33-year-old Dr. Mengele's life will continue to be very, very good. On the road to recovery, Irene left Auschwitz on October 30th. Mengele accompanied her and the couple stopped overnight in Gunsberg to visit Mengele's family. Really glad things are going so well for him. Uh, November 2nd, Mengele and Irene headed to uh, Freiburg to be reunited with Rolf for whom uh, the new mother had been separated for three months, far longer than she'd anticipated. Four days later, Mengele heads back to Auschwitz. He sent Irene a postcard referring to his little man. Evidently, he was thinking a lot about his family because three weeks later, he wrote to Irene that he was attempting to get out of Auschwitz, which was closer and closer to being targeted by air raids every day and being transferred to a field unit. But his transfer would not be approved. So Mengele started making arrangements for Irene to come to Auschwitz, but she didn't seem to reply to his letters regarding her decision. In early November, he wrote again, displaying some irritation. I am still waiting to hear from you. I hope you have decided because if you come, you have to let me know soon due to the slow mail. Christmas is almost here and travel is so difficult in the pre-Christmas period. 
I'm working hard on furnishing the apartment. I need to know because I'll need to buy a crib for Rolf. He'd received three letters from Irene the following week, held up by the mail, and discovered she'd already agreed to come after Christmas. Uh, speaking of Christmas again, uh, happy holidays, everybody. Just again, just really hoping, uh, you know, just uh, bringing the holiday spirit into your lives. So fucked up. Uh, anyway, Irene would never make the trip. Nazi Germany starting to get their shitty ass kicked and the war will ruin that. Finally, some good news. Meanwhile, in early November of 1944, Eva Kor and Miriam and the rest of the Mengele twins were transferred to the former gypsy camp, which was next to the gas chamber in the crematorium. Experiments now become less routine. Right? She's taken uh, to the lab still, but not as frequently. It is clear that something is distracting the Nazis from their experimentation focus. By the beginning of 1945, a Soviet advance threatens the camp and the SS prepare for withdrawal. Inmates who were deemed able were forced to evacuate Auschwitz, embarking on, a, on so-called death marches to camps in the West without adequate clothing and the harsh winter weather. Thousands succumbed to the elements or were murdered outright by the accompanying German guards. They just fucking couldn't let them go free. Right? Even when they're, they're, they're losing. They got to know on some level they're losing. Uh, after dynamiting the gas chamber, crematorium complexes, and destroying camp documents, the SS vacate Auschwitz on January 17th, 1945. Anthropologist, uh, right, Martina uh, Pusina, a prisoner assistant to Joseph Mengele, we met her a little before, spotted Mengele feverishly packing before he left. She said, I remember well that in January of 1945, a few days before the evacuation, Mengele appeared in the room where his files were stored and like a madman packed up all the notes and prepared them for being shipped. He did not speak a word and then disappeared and I never saw him again. Yeah, because, uh, you know, she wasn't Aryan, so fuck her. Uh, meanwhile, on January 27th, 1945, just four days before Eva Kors' 10th birthday, Auschwitz is liberated. Liberated, excuse me. Uh, Hail Nimrod. She and many of the other child experiments had thankfully not been forced to march anywhere else and had been left behind. And I'm, I might have mentioned her being 10 years old earlier. So she obviously was nine, just showed up as 10 in the source and little uh, mistake there possibly. I'm just flashing on that. Uh, after being rescued, she would be held in a refugee camp until September of 1945. Eventually, she would make it home. And in 1948, put in a request along with Miriam to immigrate to Israel. Though both outlived the war by, by quite a ways, Miriam will die in Israel at the age of 59 of kidney cancer. Her kidneys were permanently damaged by Mengele's experiments. Eva will live until the age of 85. She'll end up spending most of her life in Terre Haute, Indiana. Uh, but before that, in January of 1945, Mengele went to Ross Rosen concentration camp and reported to colleagues that he had blown up crematoria two and three. While he waited to see where he ought to go next, he was still confident that Germany would win, uh, that Hitler had some kind of miracle weapon he was close to unleashing on the Allied scum. After a couple of days of traveling around, Mengele was ordered to go back to Gross Rosen or Gross, fucking whatever, <laughs> Gross Rosen. Uh, where he was to be the SS garrison physician, responsible for both the prisoners and the SS personnel. Mengele assumed his new responsibilities on February 5th, but the continued Allied advance did not allow him to stay put for long. He was almost immediately tasked with helping to evacuate camp again, which would be, or a camp again, which would be liberated by the Soviets on February 13th. By March of 1945, Mengele would bounce around three other camps, while as the Allies advanced from both east and west, uh, uh, you know, never staying anywhere long, in the final days of the war, Mengele would appear at a military field hospital in Sudetenland. He'd shed his incriminating SS uniform, dress himself up as an ordinary German army officer. With a new unit, he settled in a sort of no-man's land that wasn't occupied yet by the Americans or the Soviets. Here, Mengele would develop a cover story for himself, cast himself as a Wehrmacht officer, the basic armed forces of Nazi Germany. He tried several names, including that of a famous Bavarian painter, Joseph Memling. Around mid-June, the Soviets had come... Uh, close to the no man's land and Mengele and his colleagues wanted to make sure they were taken into U.S. custody 
and not taken by the communists. He was soon taken into American custody, interned in the vicinity of the German city of Hof near the Czech border. Mengele would remain there until late July when he and others were transferred to another POW camp in Helmbrex. More than 2,000 POWs would be released from there in July alone. And in early August, Mengele would be released as well. He got a discharge certificate that proved that he had been screened by U.S. authorities and properly released. Mengele's certificate would bear the name Fritz Holman. Mengele could have escaped detection for many reasons, understaffing of the POW camps, general confusion, but he also had a distinct advantage. Members of the SS typically had their blood type tattooed on the inside of their left arm, so the doctors who treated them would know even if they were unconscious. Uh, Mengele avoided getting this tattoo. Not sure how he pulled that off. Uh, maybe that medical torturer was, uh, was afraid of needles. Mengele was dropped off near Ingolstadt, a Bavarian city about 100 kilometers from his hometown of Gunsberg. He'd arrive at a friend's house wearing a uniform without insignia, told his friend he wouldn't be going home, however. He would travel to visit a female friend who lived in the Soviet, un- or Soviet zone of occupation. Unclear why he would do that. Some historians think he was trying to recover some of the scientific notes he lost during transit, which may have winded up with a nurse. In his autobiography, he indicated that he ended up in Munich where he stayed until mid-October. He'd then find work at a farm where he lived for the next three years in a small hamlet called Mangolding. The farm was less than 23 acres in size and at the time Mengele was there, had 10 cows, a few horses and grew potatoes, grain and fodder. How fucking random. Three years he was there. Wonder if after a long day of milking cows and harvesting some taters, he'd laid in bed and dreamt of the good old days when he was torturing and killing children by the dozens sending thousands to their gas chamber deaths. Mengele knew he had no prospects in Germany. He didn't want to work at the farm forever. His no-nonsense boss required him to work every day but Sunday. Oh, poor baby. Waking up at 4.30 in the morning to spend between 12 and 14 hours working in the fields or in the barn. That work earned him 10 marks per week, barely enough to survive. No one on the farm knew his true identity, although they knew he was not originally from a farming family. He wrote and read quite a bit, also frequently washed his hands, kind of like how a doctor might do. Uh, From his brother, Carl, who did manage to visit him, Mengele learned about his family's fate. His father and youngest brother had been interned, while Irene and Rolf, along with Irene's parents, and Mengele's mother, the fucking Hamburglar, had been evacuated to a tiny hamlet in southern Germany. Even though she survived the war, Mengele's mother, Mrs. Double Bacon Cheeseburger, died in January of 1946. She fell ill and was taken to a hospital where she died. During this farm period, Mengele would see Irene twice. Once when she visited him, and then once later when he surprised her on vacation in uh, Oberstdorf. Irene was shocked to see him. She thought he'd committed suicide. If only we could be that lucky in the story. Uh, Mengele wasn't sure any, any more about a future with Irene and his son, Rolf. She seemed distant, pessimistic about them ever getting to enjoy a normal life again. She knew about the allegations against her husband in October of 1945. Uh, a newspaper article in early October had mentioned how Joseph Mengele had, quote, watched people die with animal pleasure. Yee. Uh, not something many wives want to hear about their husbands. Animal pleasure. Uh, Irene was also clearly aware of the denazification efforts, but begun by the Allies taken over by the Germans, intended to rid Germany of the influence of national socialism by identifying and removing from public life anyone who, who had contributed to the Nazi state in any meaningful way. As a first step in the denazification process, every German male above a certain age had to fill out a questionnaire detailing his activities and memberships during the Nazi period. It was clear that Mengele was not going to slip through the cracks in this process. He had to leave Europe or risk being caught and soon uh, and being charged and then convicted of war crimes, which would have uh, certainly earned him an execution. So in public, Irene began to act as though her husband was dead, going as far as publicly mourning, even having a priest uh, conduct a mass. 
This ruse apparently worked. Responding to an inquiry about Mengele in January of 1948, General Telford Taylor, the American chief counsel for war crimes, reported, our records show Dr. Mengele is dead as of October 1946. Well, Mengele is not dead, clearly, obviously. Uh, Finally makes his move to leave Europe in the fall of 1948. The farmer who employed Mengele could no longer afford to employ him. Mengele left the farm August 1st, and his whereabouts over the next nine months are a matter of speculation. His son, Rolf, would later tell journalists that his dad hid in the woods near Gunsberg, getting the necessary logistical and financial help to leave Europe. The financial help was readily available because the Mengele family business was fucking booming again. Their most popular product was a wheelbarrow, uh, which was used to haul away all the rubble throughout uh, post-war Germany's crumbling cities. Mengele would first cross into Italy by way of Austria, leaving Innsbruck on April 15, 1949. Then he obtained the necessary identification documents and made his way to Genoa. His ID card uh, said his name was Helmut Gregor. Once in Genoa, he got a passage on the North Queen. He obtained a passport from the Swiss consulate, like many Nazis did, departing Italy uh, for South America. Fucking gross, Switzerland. Switzerland had remained neutral during the war, but many important leaders had been outspoken in their support of Nazi Germany. These men retained their positions after the war and were in a position to help out. Swiss bankers, out of greed or or sympathy, both despicable, also helped former Nazis move and launder funds. Mengele's next task was to obtain a certification that he had no tax obligations and then a so-called begging certificate, which indicated that he had never begged in Italy or been the recipient of public welfare. He then had to undergo, ironically, a physical examination. Getting his visa would uh, would be complicated, however. He was detained and interrogated by an Italian official who accused him of committing crimes against Italian POWs. Luckily for Mengele, this lucky fuck, an acquaintance showed up and cleared uh, cleared up this misunderstanding. Mengele was now free to depart. Mengele arrives in Buenos Aires, Argentina, June 20th, 1949. He fucking did it. Uh, still going by Helmut Greger. He was a free man. Uh, he would get a job randomly as a carpenter in a room that he shared with an engineer. Things would look up for him in September of 1949 when he moved into the home of Gerard Malbronk. Or Malbronk. Couldn't find a guide for anybody saying his name. Uh, a known Nazi sympathizer. Malbronk provided comfortable living arrangements and entry into circles of prominent expat Germans and right-wing Argentines. Mengele obtained his Argentine identity card, alien identity card, issued in the name of Helmut Greger on September 17th, 1949, listing the Malbrank home as his address. During this early period in Argentina, Mengele received significant financial support from his family, and his dad actually visited him at least once, probably in July of 1952. He would even sell some of the Mengele firm's products to customers in Argentina. Clearly, his dad and other family members uh, not disgusted by what he'd done. In 1953, Mengele moved into his own apartment, began to travel to Paraguay. Uh, Mengele also returned to his science during this period, publishing articles on genetics under the name G. Helmuth. He moved to the predominantly German suburb of Olivos and got himself a car in 1954, uh, applied for a driver's license. His former landlord and friend, again, Gerard, as well as another acquaintance, certified his upstanding character so he could do this. Although still still living under a false identity, he had a comfortable place to live, a wide circle of friends, including Adolf Eichmann, the so-called architect of the Holocaust. Sure, they had a lot of conversations about the good old days when they tried to literally kill all the Jewish people in Europe. Talked about the most evil shit imaginable. Probably fucking coldly, unemotionally, over nice wine and great steak dinners. Uh, Mengele at least had his wife leave him. Irene refused to follow him to South America and sued for divorce. And of course, she kept little Ralph. Right. Nice that she's uh, or that he, excuse me, is getting hurt a little bit if he was capable of uh, feeling hurt. 
Shortly after his divorce, Carl Mengele, uh, Carl Mengele's brother, dies suddenly of a heart ailment at the uh, age of 30. Yeah, sorry, I said that weird. It's Carl, who is Carl Mengele, Joseph Mengele's brother. Uh, yeah, dies of uh, some kind of heart attack. Uh, 37, leaving his wife Martha as a widow. Um, Mengele Sr. was afraid that her remarriage outside of the family would take away from the business's profits, so Carl demands that Joseph now marry his brother's widow, and he does. Probably knew daddy would uh, stop giving him money if he didn't. Mengele would get a passport to go to Europe on September 1st, 1955. Pretty ballsy. March of the following year, he'd fly to Switzerland with a brief stopover in New York City. Nazi angel of death, just checking out Manhattan a bit in 1955. In Engelbert, Switzerland, he registers at the best hotel in town. Martha's there waiting for him, along with Rolf, who thought Mengele was his uncle. How weird. Mengele also visited some family in Gunsberg, got to know Martha, and then went back to Argentina. Now he decides to get rid of his fake identity. On September 11th, 1956, Mengele receives a document from the German embassy, certifying his identity as Joseph Mengele. Holy shit. With a certificate in hand, Mengele applies for an Argentine identity card, which was issued to him under the name Jose Mengele. Excuse me. On November 26, 1956. In the same month, he's issued a new German passport, completing the official resumption of his old identity. Martha and her son, Karl Heinz, uh, join Mengele in Buenos Aires in October of October of 1956, and then move into a new house that Mengele had purchased in uh, Olivos. And now, with his identity intact, he can resume his true life's passion, science. He joins with a few partners in October of 1957 to create a pharmaceutical company called Fadrofarm. Federal Farm, probably subsidiary of uh, Bear Evil Incorporated, manufactured a drug for the treatment of tuberculosis, which was which was uh, considered very effective. I kind of hate that he's helping people now, right? So fucking weird that his new company, I'm sure, probably saved a lot of lives. Like if he would have been killed at the end of World War II, would some future Federal Farm customers have died? Yeah, quite possibly. Meanwhile, back in Germany in March of 1958, a man named Ernst Ernst Schnabel. Uh, publishes a manuscript about the life of Anne Frank. Why can't everyone have names as easy as Anne Frank? Uh, based on her diaries and interviews with individual people who knew her. One young reader, a girl, having read an, an expert excerpt of the book, was certain that one of the book's claims was wrong. The claim was this. No one knew what Dr. Mengele was, whether he died or whether he still lived somewhere. Uh, on July 7th, 1957, the young reader wrote her letter to Ernst uh, Schnabel. Apparently, some people do know. Otherwise, the older Herr Mengele in Gunsberg would not have told his former housemaid that his son, who was an SS doctor, practiced medicine in South America under a different name. And because he was so homesick, Mr. Mengele sent the widow of another son over there. This will almost get this fucker caught. On July 27th, 1958, Martha and Mengele get married in Uruguay. And thanks to that girl's letter, the hunt is now on for Joseph Mengele. Uh, through, through a big chain of Schnabel contacting a prosecutor who then contacts other authorities and on and on, Mengele's whereabouts are eventually traced all the way to Joseph Mengele's, uh, home in Buenos Aires. A warrant for Mengele's arrest will be issued by Freiburg, uh, by a Freiburg Germany, German court on February 25th, 1959. Now it's time to petition Argentina to arrest Mengele and extradite him, but they don't have, you know, like, uh, they don't have to. Uh, it took more than a year for the German extradition request to even make its way through the, uh, uh, you know, system slowed by technicalities and a lethargic bureaucracy. Fucking red tape gives Mengele time to move on. And a lot of that uh, red tape was on the Argentine side. I should have made that clear. By the time the Argentine government issues Mengele's arrest warrant, uh, he'd already been gone for months. They fucking had him. If the Argentine government hadn't made a nasty habit of harboring and protecting Nazis, 
they would have had him. He now had fled to Paraguay and obtained, uh, you know, uh, citizenship there. He arrives in Paraguay on October 2nd, 1958. He sold his shares of the pharmaceutical company, registered as a resident, May of 1959. Mengele becomes a citizen of Paraguay, Paraguay November 27th, 1959. He keeps a low profile, living on a farm in the southeast of the country. Declassified Mossad documents would show that on January 8th, 1960, Mossad chief uh, Isser Harrell had been alerted to Mengele's possible presence in Argentina and asked his associate Ephraim uh, Alani, who specialized in Mossad operations in South America, to look into it. Mossad, the National Intelligence Agency of Israel. In the late winter and early spring of 1960, while Mossad was planning its operation to capture Eichmann, it also attempted to find Mengele's address and looked into a number of possibilities, but with no success. It did not know that Mengele had already left Argentina for Paraguay. May 15, 1965, days after Eichmann's capture, Mossad agents would question Eichmann about Mengele's whereabouts, and Eichmann would admit that he met Mengele three times, once in 1951, once in 1952, and again in uh, 1954, 1955. But the info was not helpful. Though unsuccessful at finding him, the capture of Adolf Eichmann changed everything for Mengele. Though technically in Paraguay and safe from extradition, it was now clear that Israel didn't care. Mossad agents would come and find former Nazis without waiting for warrants and approvals from embassies. Uh, so he had to disappear again. Eichmann, meanwhile, will be executed. So that's a bit of positive news. He was hanged on June 1st, 1962. And supposedly his last words were, I hope that all of you will follow me. Nazi to the very end. Back in mid-1960, Mengele now chooses to live in Brazil, which he left for in mid-October of 1960 under the assumed name of Peter Huckbickler. Martha's still with him. Uh, December of 1961, after a meeting in Paris, an informant would tell Mossad agents that he knew of a man who maintained regular contact with Mengele, meeting every six months or so. He told uh, the Mossad agents uh, that Martha Mengele had now returned to Europe, settling in Switzerland. So Joseph is alone again. After more probing, the Mossad uh, agents learned that Mengele is living outside Sao Paulo, uh, the city, not the state, in an isolated house guarded by armed men, and that he's depressed and had considered suicide. So that's nice. In early of a- uh, April 1962, the Mossad uh, sent an officer sent an offer to Sao Paulo to track down more of Mengele's associates. Sent an officer. I think I just messed up my own notes here. And on July 23rd, 1962, agents would observe a group of men, one of whom looked exactly like Mengele, right? They should have him now. Agent Zivi Malkin reportedly exclaimed over his radio in Yiddish, that's him. We found him, the little shit. But the response came to uh, hold off on direct action until explicit permission was given. But then that permission will never be given because the operation is suddenly halted. A document declassified in 2017 would show that the hunt for Mengele was abruptly called off due to Operation uh, Damocles. In July of 1962, Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser announced four successful tests of missiles capable of striking anywhere in Israel. Egypt's announcement came as a surprise. Israel subsequently learned that Nasser had recruited German scientists who had developed the V-1 and V-2 rockets for the Nazis fired at Great Britain during the war to build missiles for him. Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion tasked the Mossad with the mission of preventing Egypt from producing the missiles. The Mossad subsequently commenced Operation Damocles to scare and, if necessary, eliminate the scientists helping the Egyptians. This operation would end in scandal after it became public knowledge that attacks on German scientists had killed other innocent people, some random Egyptian citizens. Mossad director uh, over this scandal, uh, Isser Harrell, resigns. And he was the one who had been pioneering the search for Mengele. So now the search is severely hindered. And where is Mengele now? Working at fucking Disneyland. Selling refreshments next to Space Mountain. And who hired him? Roy fucking Disney. Of course he did. No. Uh, Mengele was working as a farm manager in Nova Europa, Brazil, on a farm that grew coffee. He'd moved there sometime in 1961. 
Mossad would continue to attempt to pursue him following tips and leads across South America, their missions repeatedly failing and following false paths. Right? They'd had their chance and they fucking blew it. Over the next decade, they'll bug his wife Martha's homes in Europe. They'll run surveillance on other relatives' homes, on family funerals. They'll do a bunch of stakeouts, but they just can't track this fucker down. Mengele's farm owner buddy, uh, the buddies he's been working for for years now, buy a house in 1974 in Sao Paulo, and they rent a bungalow to him. Rolf, who had not seen his uncle's father uh, since the ski holiday in 1956, now visits him again at this bungalow in 1977. And he'll say later he found an unrepentant Nazi who claimed he had never personally harmed literally anyone and only carried out his duties as an officer. Right, of course. Of course, that is how he rationalized it all. A uh, special Mossad unit will be created on March 13th, 1978, whose sole purpose was to locate and capture Nazi war criminals. And if that was impossible, you know, as far as the capturing part, to kill them. So fuck yeah. Mengele is a major target for them. They plan to kidnap the child of one of Mengele's associates and force him to reveal Mengele's location or the child will be killed. Uh, it seems a bit extreme. Wrong kind of eye for an eye, maybe, right? Don't become the people you hate. Maybe don't kill an innocent kid to try and capture a Nazi. Uh, kidnap the associate. Kill that Nazi harboring motherfucker if he won't talk. Uh, the leadership of Mossad does ultimately reject this plan, which is the right call. Uh, Mengele, now in poor health while visiting friends in Bertiago, or Bertiaga, Bertioga, sorry, a coastal resort town in Sao Paulo, Brazil in February of 1979, suffers a stroke while swimming and drowns. Right, this is on February 7th. So yeah, buddy. His body is buried under the name Wolfgang Gerhard, whose identification Mengele had been using uh, since 1971. Meanwhile, reports about Mengele's location continue to come in from all over the world. People report to see him in South America, Europe, and Africa, and the hunt goes on. So how annoying. Now more Jewish time and money is being wasted trying to find a monster who's already dead. On the 40th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, January of 1985, a group of Mengele's surviving twins made an emotional pilgrimage to the camp that had caused them and so many others so much suffering. This group was led by Eva Kaur. She had started an organization called Candles, which sought to identify and bring together all the surviving twins who had been subjected to Mengele's experiments in Auschwitz. The 1985 group included Eva and her sister, as well as six others, all survivors of pairs of twins who traveled to Poland, not only to commemorate, but also to bring attention to their history. They were upset that Mengele was still unpunished and at large as far as they knew. Uh, after their visit to Auschwitz, the twins traveled to Israel, where they were joined by another 90 or so twins, dwarfs, and others who survived Mengele's experiments. There, they took part in a tribunal, which decided there was sufficient evidence to try Mengele for war crimes and crimes against humanity, including acts of murder, the causing of grievous bodily harm, and acts of brutality against the bodies and souls of men and women. Shortly afterwards, the West German, Israeli, and U.S. governments launched a coordinated effort to determine Mengele's whereabouts. The West German and Israeli governments uh, offer rewards for his capture, as does the Washington Times and the Simon uh, Weisenthal Center. Crazy that it took that fucking long for this to happen. Just under 40 years. Uh, well, actually, right. I mean, right, what am I talking about? Right at 40 years. Uh, finally, May 31st, 1985, acting on intelligence received by the West German prosecutor's office, police raid the house of Hans uh, Sedlmeier, lifelong friend of Mengele, and sales manager of the family firm in Gunsberg. They find a coded address book, copies of letters sent to and received from Mengele. Among the papers were, was a letter notifying Settlemeyer of Mengele's death. German authorities alert the police in Sao Paulo, who then contact the Bossards, some friends of Mengele's there. Under interrogation, they reveal the location of Mengele's grave and the remains are exhumed June 6, 1985. Forensics would confirm that it was him, the angel of death, 
Unfortunately, to my knowledge, none of those people uh, who'd helped hide him were ever punished. His son, Rolf, who had no real relationship with his father, issued a statement on June 10th, 1985, confirming that the body was his father's and the news of his father's death had been concealed to protect people who had sheltered him. 1992 now, DNA testing confirms Mengele's identity beyond any doubt. And then family members refused repeated requests by Brazilian officials to repatriate the remains to Germany. They didn't want to have anything more to do with him. Can't blame him. So where are Mengele's remains now? Well, they're inside a statue of Goofy at Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Roy Disney, of course, bought his remains, wanted to preserve them inside one of his parks so he could visit him whenever he wanted. And why would Roy do that? Because he was a fucking evil, evil man. Uh, Roy might not have done that. He died in 1971. But Pat Sajak was very alive in 1992. And there's a rumor that he bought Mangala's remains, had them cremated, and then every morning sprinkles a tiny bit of his ash into his cream of wheat and then eats it so he can, quote, absorb his power. Now, full disclosure, that rumor was just started by me a few seconds ago, and I have no evidence to back it up. But that is the rumor. Uh, the official story is that Mangala's skeleton is stored at the Sao Paulo Institute of Forensic Medicine where it is used as an educational aid during forensic medicine courses at the University of Sao Paulo's medical school. Pretty fucking weird. Fitting, maybe. Also, maybe ironic. People getting to poke and prod his bones a bit. I hope that some of those uh, doing the poking and prodding, uh, some of those med students are Jewish. And I hope at least one of them maybe breaks off one of his bones, like a little finger or something, then takes him to the bathroom and shits on it. And then flush it down the toilet and has a nice little laugh about it. And with that, how about we hop out of this time suck timeline? Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Joseph Mengele, the angel of death. What a piece of human garbage. But what a great topic for the holidays, right? I mean, how light and uplifting. Uh, no, again, uh, it was voted in topic and I honor the, and I honor the votes. <laughs> again, the timing does crack me up because it's so not fitting. Oh, let's just keep the not fitting going. Let's just keep this not holiday vibe going with one of the worst sponsors we have literally ever had. Uh, today's Time Suck was brought to you in part by uh, uh, a new album from Third Reich Records. It's a Mangala Christmas. Before drowning off the coast of Brazil, Joseph Mangala recorded this uh, just discovered recording of Christmas classics altered as only he could. I wish you a Merry Christmas. My mom's name is Valperga. My mom's name is Valperga. A great master race name. Good tidings I bring to every young kin. I wish you a Merry Christmas. If you are pure, oh, bring me a blonde Santa. Oh, bring me blue eyed reindeer. Oh, bring me only Germans, no gypsies, Jews, or Poles. Tidings I bring to only German kin. I wish you Merry Christmas, please bring me more twins. I won't quit until they're all gone. I need to, to do some more poking. I need more of their eyeballs. I do nothing wrong. I just follow orders. I did not kill anyone. Okay, maybe I kill few kids. Have a happy new year. That was fucking gross. And I'm pretty sure I wasn't on the right melody for that last four lines. I hope, <laughs> I hope no one buys that shitty fucking album. Doesn't sound like they put a lot of time into it. It's the worst holiday song I've ever heard. But again, 
No, happy holidays. Uh, seriously, though, what a fucking piece of shit Mengele was. I uh, didn't have any kind of backstory that would lead to the growth of a sociopathic mind. No abusive parents, no religious trauma. Wasn't even touched by the Great Depression. His family's business continued to do well. He was in a position to do whatever he wanted, study whatever he liked, and he would choose to the detriment of thousands, if not tens of thousands, medicine. At that point, Germany's medical establishment had already become just another propaganda machine for the Nazi ideology. Instead of swearing to heal the sick and do no harm, doctors educated under the Nazis swore to protect the racial purity of the nation and promised to find scientific proof of Aryan people's superiority. Mengele's first academic works would try to prove Aryan superiority by looking at the jawbone to find proof of racial difference. Research that, you know, has been discredited. Research that really didn't even hold up then. Research, at least a part of him, had to know was fucking questionable at best. Uh, Before long, Joseph Mengele would be doing far more than simply writing about topics like eugenics and Nazi racial theory. After a period of service with the Viking division, now at a new position of uh, at uh, Auschwitz, he would find his terrible groove and excel at being a piece of shit. Mengele got to Auschwitz during a transitional period. The camp had long been the site of forced labor and PO, POW internment, but the winter of 1942 to 1943 had seen the camp ramp up its killing machine centered on the Birkenau subcamp where Mengele was assigned to be a medical officer. Mengele had access to as many people as he wanted, as many human guinea pigs representing all kinds of different genetic pools and physical appearances, and he had the ability to kill them if he wanted, and he often did. Using the methodology of twin research, Mengele made the lives of thousands of people, many of their children, a living hell. He scoped out the healthy and the prisoners with degrees uh, during with the uh, brutal selection process, uh, where some prisoners who were useful were kept alive and others, like the sick, the elderly, the pregnant, were sent to the gas chambers to die. With his assistance and experiments recruited from these selection pools, Mengele got to work. Mengele assembled hundreds of pairs of twins and sometimes spent hours measuring various parts of their bodies and taking careful notes. He often injected one twin with a mysterious substance and then monitored the illness that ensued. Mengele injected dyes into some of their eyes, experimented on the reproductive organs, took samples of their blood and tissue until they were near death, even had children castrated or fucking sewn together. Motherfucker left babies with mothers whose breasts were bound in a way that left them unable to feed them. He did shit that would make the devil fucking cringe or, I don't know, I guess maybe squeal with delight. Whenever a test subject died, the child's twin would be typically immediately killed with an injection of chloroform to the heart, and both would be dissected for comparison. Then by January 1945, the camp complex at Auschwitz had been mostly dismantled due to the continued advance of the Red Army. Starving prisoners were forced marched to other death camps. Joseph Mengele packed up his research notes and specimens and dropped them off with a trusted friend and headed west to avoid capture by the Soviets. Using a variety of aliases and sometimes his own name again, Mengele managed to avoid capture for decades, soon leaving Europe for South America, where he would live in several countries for many years. For decades, Israeli intelligence efforts to capture him failed. Finally, on February 7th, 1979, the then 67-year-old Joseph Mengele went out for a little ocean swim off the coast of Sao Paulo, Brazil, and he suffered a sudden stroke in the water and drowned. Hope he had the stroke because maybe he thought he saw the ghost of a former victim or something, but sadly, I doubt it. Dude never showed a hint of remorse for anything he did. Never seemed to believe, uh, like many other Nazis, that he did anything wrong. And one final twist is remains to be used by student doctors for medical research. If only they could have practiced on him while he was still alive. And lastly, the most important thing to remember with Mengele was that he was not an aberration. He was par for the Nazi course. He was not the only doctor doing experiments. He was far from the only Nazi who tortured and killed Jewish men, women, and children whose only crime was to have been racially maligned for decades with political and cultural propaganda. Hitler and his fuckhead helpers uh, did what people still do. They created a boogeyman for their people to point at and say, right there, 
That's the source of all your problems. They're what's wrong with your country. They deserve to die. This scapegoat mentality allows you to not have to examine yourself when it comes to wondering why your life isn't where you want it. It doesn't require any introspection. It promotes a simple, easy fix, a little magic pill for all your troubles. Get rid of them and you will thrive. And that is rarely the truth. It's lazy and it's wrong. Germany's problems leading up to World War II had very little to do with the Jewish problem. There was no Jewish problem, right? It had a lot to do with taking shit way too fucking far in World War I, then getting fucked over in the Treaty of Versailles, which was not part of some Jewish plot to destroy the fucking German people. German Jews, many of them also suffered thanks to that treaty, right? And there were many other factors, complicated factors that require a lot more thought than just pointing and blaming. Beware all politicians who lean on the point and blame who lean on simple solutions to complex problems. They're wrong. They're manipulating you. And we have to remember that and watch out for it if we don't want to ever create another version of Hitler's hell on earth. Always and forever. Fuck Nazis. Fuck lazy thinking. Fuck Mangala. And of course, happy holidays. <laughs> let's, let's get into today's takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Joseph Mengele conducted torturous experiments on prisoners at Auschwitz for years. Mengele begun his career at Auschwitz in the spring of 1943 as the medical officer responsible for Birkenau's gypsy camp. As a camp physician, Mengele regularly made selections from among the mass of humanity arriving at Auschwitz, determining who could be retained for work and who could perish or who would perish immediately in the gas chambers. But his real cruelty took place in the lab where he performed a broad range of agonizing, often lethal experiments on twins, most of them young children, and those with physical abnormalities. He harvested tissue and blood samples, had his subjects murdered so he could dissect their bodies, even kept their body parts for research material to be sent to colleagues at other universities. Number two, Mengele wasn't alone in the way he approached science. Since Nazism began to take hold of Germany, the medical community shifted from a place that healed the sick to a force of scientists fighting to prove the innate superiority of the Aryan race and to figure out how to detect undesirable elements in a population and then destroy those elements. Number three, Mengele died on February 7th, 1979 after uh, having a stroke while swimming. That fucker was never caught or forced to face justice for his crimes, having escaped to South America where he lived out the rest of his years in hiding and where he never expressed an ounce of remorse for what he did. Never saw what he did as wrong. Didn't even think he killed anyone. We can rationalize anything as a species if we try hard enough. Number four, Mengele's assistants at Auschwitz were also its prisoners. Pharmacists, doctors, nurses, note-takers, and more, all of them forced to witness the destruction of people just like them. People who complied because not doing so meant certain death. How many of them may have helped torture relatives or friends? How many of them wished they could have helped the person they were instructed to subject to torture? What nightmares and guilt they must have taken with them following the war? Number five, new info in February of 2010, a 180-page volume of Mengele's diary was sold by Alexander Autographs at auction for an undisclosed sum to the grandson of a Holocaust survivor. The unidentified previous owner who acquired the journals in Brazil was reported to be close to the Mengele family. A Holocaust survivor's organization described the sale as a cynical act of exploitation aimed at profiting from the writings of one of the most heinous Nazi criminals. In 2011, a further 31 volumes of Mengele's diaries were sold again amidst protests by the same auction house to an undisclosed collector of World War II memorabilia for U.S. Uh, for $245,000 U.S. dollars. The diaries had belonged for a time to Mengele's son, Rolf, but he was apparently not the direct seller. A spokesman for the auction house confirmed the sale to the German press agency, but refused to give information about the seller or the buyer, saying it was up to customers whether or not to go public about a purchase. Time suck. 
top five takeaways. Dr. Mangala, Nazi Angel of Death, a holiday classic. <laughs> That's been sucked. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for the help in making time suck this week. Thanks uh, to Queen of Magic, Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, my very own Christmas elf. Thanks to, uh, you know, both the Art Warlock and the Suck Ranger for producing and directing today. And, uh, yeah. Uh, sorry, I don't know why I started another end. Uh, also, thanks to Bitelixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app, the Art Warlock, Logan Keith again, creating the cool merch, badmagicmerch.com. Helping run our socials along with the Suck Ranger and a team managed by our social media strategist, Ryan Handelsman. Thanks to producer Sophie Evans for kicking ass with the initial research this week. And thank you for listening. And next week, I'm going to do a year-end review episode. Going to pull back the curtain on what we've been up to. It's been a crazy year. Good year. Crazy year. I'll share some inside stuff. And uh, as always, um, you know, what we're going to try and do next year. And uh, I'll do a mini dive on some sort of inspirational story to try and motivate myself and hopefully some of you to really see how you can change your lives in positive ways in 2023. Because if we don't try... Nothing will get better, right? I don't think there's some magic secret type fix in a lot of instances. But I do think that, you know, trying is always better than not trying. Uh, Still not sure as of this recording what the story will be. Debating over a few options I've been looking over. Uh, Looking for the one that resonates with me the strongest right now. Uh, It won't won't be the fucking secret, I'll tell you. And then after next week, we're off and running with our regularly scheduled suck programming in 2023. Right now, let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Let's start with a quick update on her Baumeister from last week. Smart Sack Lori P brings up something the Art Warlock and I actually discussed this past week on The Secret Suck. Uh, The Patreon Companion Podcast, this one. Lori writes, Hi Dan, perhaps Mrs. Baumeister was asexual. If so, six times in 25 years would have been plenty. Asexuality is a sexual orientation and it exists in a spectrum just like all the other forms of human behavior. Asexual people may want the intimacy of a traditional family, but feel no sexual attraction or desire for sex. Not sure what Lisa Fina would have to say about this. Just something to keep in mind. Love the show. Yeah, Lori. Uh, Yeah, we just talked about that. Um, Yes. Uh, Mrs. Baumeister could have absolutely been asexual. And I have known plenty of asexual people. Some of us don't just don't have much of a sex drive or people who sure seemed asexual. I didn't ask him. Hey, are you asexual? You seem, you just seem like you don't have any sexuality about you. Uh, no, but some of us just don't have much of a sex drive or really any sex drive, but also lead very fulfilling, happy lives. As confusing as that may be, Lucifina is definitely a real thing and totally okay. Sexuality is a spectrum. And yeah, in six times, 25 years, roughly once every four years might've been plenty for Julie. I don't know why I got my math so weird. <laughs> I was breaking that down in the episode. Uh, still blown away. She got three kids out of those six times. Now for another Baumeister update from another shrewd sack, Nick Miller. Miller time. Nick writes, hey, Dan, I have a little insight on a comment you made about her Baumeister having a car with an Ohio license plate on this week's suck. I live in Indiana, and in the 70s and 80s, it was very easy to claim residency in Ohio. At the time, if you could claim an address in Ohio, you could get a license or license plate. The thing was a P.O. box counted as an address, and anyone could get a P.O. box in Ohio for a very small fee. My grandfather was a truck driver who had two CDLs, one in Indiana, one in Ohio, so that if he got too many points on one license that may threaten his employment, he would just start using the other one. It's pretty clever. Grandpa had a P.O. box in Wilshire, Ohio, small town right on the state line, perhaps Wilshire. And he would occasionally sign up for some sort of mailing to be sent to it so that it stayed active. Once every few weeks, he would drive over the line, get his mail over there. He kept his P.O. box for decades. I know for certain he had it in the 90s when I was a kid. 
Also told me that he, uh, he often told me that he tried to get a second social security number years back in case he ever needed that. Uh, it was never clear on whether he had been successful in obtaining one. He even encouraged me to do the same thing in the early 2000s when I started having kids to get a second social security number for each of them. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can get a lot of trouble for that. However, by that point, Ohio would close the loophole in their system. Based on what grandpa did, I'm sure this is what Herb had done to get a license and have a car plated with Ohio plates to avoid suspicion on his escapades. Anyway, I thought you'd find that interesting. Nick Miller. Thank you, Nick. I, I did find that interesting. I bet Herb did do the same thing. Couldn't find any info about it in sources, but I, I would guess he had a P.O. box with a, a, a different name possibly too, if it was that easy. Also, why is your grandpa trying to get two social security numbers? Is your grandpa a serial killer? Lead to double life? Is there more to the story? A lot more? Better secrets, double social security numbers. Papa Miller. Uh, thank you for the insight. Uh, one more update to last week's episode. Ghost hunting sucker Dave and DFW writes, Hail Nimrod, you outkicked your coverage with our queen. Hail Lucifina. Oh, thank you. I agree. Scr- uh, Scritch Bojangles and I too have been a Triple M fan and occasional personator for 40 years or so. Anyway, I grew up in Indy, graduated in 1990, still have ties. Though the military took me to various places, it's still my hometown, even if I live in Texas now. I've been with my current girlfriend, still an indie resident and a high school friend. Oh, that's cool. It's fucking adorable for just under a year now. Only took me 35 years to finally get her. <laughs> LOL. I was up there with her just a few months ago. And because of scared to death, Fox Hollow Farms came up and we decided to go check it out. That's awesome. And the sucky made a point of saying that the news story with her referred to him as from Carmel, but that Fox Hollow uh, was in Westfield. Well, somehow both are true, at least according to Google Maps. You can search Fox Hollow Farm. It defaults to Westfield. But then when you search the actual address, the property comes up as Carmel. Not pronounced like the California town Clint Eastwood ran for a bit uh, in the 80s, 90s though. Westfield was tiny and Carmel hadn't gone that far north yet. Uh, They're both still growing like crazy. My girl and I pulled into what looked like a newish housing development, but saw the original buildings deeper in. I don't know what those property values uh, look like or if they'll go all poltergeist or what, but I doubt I'll make an offer on any of them at any price. When we pulled in, I instantly wanted to get the fuck out. Uh, Cardinal Ritter, Ritter High School. Oh, great mush mouth. Ritter, no N. Don't even get me started on you with <laughs> Marion Highlands making me crave mozzarella sticks. Pasta a couple weeks ago. Oh man, I wish it was a fucking pasta island. Uh, look into the Hannah House on Indy Southside. It was a station on the Underground Railroad. Has a tragic fi- Had a tragic fire. Indiana is spoopy. Hello, Lindsay. Uh, as you two have documented, but it's still home. Hell, you were on uh, Todd McComas' show and that's what made me a sucker. Another Indiana connection. Anyway, my email is long and rambling. Sorry, not sorry. Three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a damn thing. My best to you and the crew. Happy holidays. Gonna buy tickets to either the Dallas or Indy show or both. Dave and DFW. Well, thank you, Dave. That's so fucking cool. You went out and scoped out the property. You know, others have written in and said that they've uh, seen it recently too. And that I guess Herb and Julie's original acreage has been parceled out quite a bit, chopped up a decent amount. Uh, there are numerous homes where he likely buried bodies. There's like, there's still like the, the bulk. I can't think of the name right now of the people that live there right now that I referenced last week. They still have a large chunk, the biggest chunk, but the rest is chopped up quite a bit. And, uh, so glad you like both shows and, uh, found me on Todd McComas, his show, which I, you know, he has different ones now. He's, he's great. Happy holidays. And then just one more, a nice Christmassy message from sweet sucker Jenna who writes, hello, beautiful friends. It's a little early, but I wanted to share something amazing and random that happened to slash for my family with a community that values loving each other and paying good fortune forward as much as I do. A little background is necessary and therefore so is the length of this email. I'm the mom of a five-year-old of five-year-old autistic twins. Oh boy, this fucking week's episode. What a doozy for you. 
Future American Idol uh, winner Libby, who loves music, singing, and scaring me <laughs> only a little by naming composers of classical music out of nowhere. And future American Ninja Warrior Bobby, who's eight inches taller than his sister and super athletic. That's awesome. They were both diagnosed as borderline moderate severe when they were just under two, although Libby can verbalize when she feels like it. And Bobby is nonverbal as of now and have been receiving in-home ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis Services since then. We have been with the same provider for the past three years and have been truly blessed with a wide array of wonderful, positive, genuinely kind, and mostly very young people who've chosen to work with special needs kids. Shout out to all the BIs, behavioral interventionists, for being an amazing group of people. My husband's currently working with special needs high schoolers as a paraeducator in pursuit of his education degree and credentials, and I work in logistics for a furniture store. We care for my disabled mom who lives with us and helps us with the twins. We're expecting our third child, a daughter named Cassandra, in about three weeks, and we're doing pretty damn okay for a blue-collar family living in California. We don't take vacations, but we don't struggle to pay the bills, which made all this such an unexpected gift. The program director for our kids' treatment was at our place yesterday to go over educational planning for the next six months, which is pretty standard, but he happened to mention that the provider was looking to sponsor a family for a $250 Target Christmas gift card. And he wanted to submit Bobby and Libby to receive gifts. Thinking this was a corporate drawing of some kind, I said, hell yes. And thank you for thinking of us. He put together a list of educational and sensory things for the kids. Puzzles, magnets, kinetic sand, slime, books, all the crazy things that enhance their development and also minimize their stimming or stymie and anxiety. I didn't give it another thought until today when he contacted me to tell us we were picked and spilled the beans about the actual magnitude of what we were getting. Turned out this was not a corporate drawing at all with the gift of another special needs family who receives services from the same provider. This provider takes referrals through insurance, meaning it doesn't only provide to lower income families like us, but families of all income levels. This family chose our kids and threw in a giant box of diapers when they found out about our bonus Christmas baby. Our program director told us this anonymous family just wanted to pay it forward and help give another special needs kid a great Christmas. With our family, they just happened to find two. The magnitude of that gift is not lost on me at all. My dream is to do the same thing in a couple, few, five years when we're able to. It's the same reason why when we needed to cut back, we reduced our spending on personal indulgences, but didn't think about canceling our small monthly donation to wounded warriors. That's fucking awesome. Mercy ships, yes. Uh, or not stroking your ego here, my Annabelle space that are oh, It's very sweet. Giving is so important, even when it's just a little. And for that reason, I'm so proud to be a part of this community. I can't wait to hear about the new charity every month and sincerely hope to do the same uh, and sincerely hope to someday pay it forward the same way this anonymous and amazing family did for us. So much love to all of you and every member of the Bad Magic family, Jenna. Uh, P.S. Tyler, I love getting to know you. You are, as they say, the shit. Logan, you've inspired me to start painting again. I'll be sending you my kid-friendly cryptid portraits when they're finished. Well, Jenna, you are too sweet. And by the way, any of my flubs there, uh, Jenna wrote that perfectly. I just, my mouth is dead and not amazing to start with. Uh, thanks for sharing. Uh, some heartwarming stuff for us to end this episode on. Great palate cleanser. Good reminder of how there are so many good people in this world. You included big time, Jenna. Uh, yeah, way more than there are Mengalas, I think. Uh, and for whatever reason, I feel like I need to be constantly reminded of that. Uh, also have loved getting to know Tyler more on The Secret Suck and Logan. They're both uh, they're both pretty okay. No, they're great. Uh, as is Sophie, Olivia, and the rest of the awesome staff. Hail Nimrod to you all. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to any, uh, thanks for, I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. There, uh, reading's fun. Please don't perform any medical experiments on anyone this week. If you absolutely have to, I guess, maybe experiment on yourself. 
Maybe you should uh, sew your mouth uh, to your dick and keep on sucking. Mad Magic Productions. Hello, Meat Socks. It's, it's me, the ghost of Joseph Mengele. I just hope you have a wonderful holiday season. I don't want you to get the wrong idea about me. I am a very caring person who just has so much love in his heart for, for Aryans. And I hope if you're not uh, of an Aryan persuasion, that's okay. I just wish that you would stop listening to this podcast and you would fucking just die for the betterment of everyone. And I just, that is my holiday cheer for you. I am rotting in hell. I am being butt-fucked by Satan so much. And it's the only joy I can hold on to is just hoping that so many of you also die. So, <laughs> happy holidays. Ah, Merry Christmas. Ay, ha, happy ha. Happy ha. I can't say happy ha. I can't. I don't, I don't feel it. Ah. What do, what do we do here? Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.